We are here for Atwood Unleashed 58. Welcome. This is a four-hour live stream every Wednesday night with my co-host, the extremely handsome Andrew Gold. I was just telling Sean how handsome he is off air, and now he's, he's throwing it back at me. Handsome until... Handsome until you see his hairy back. <laughs> Looks like... what Are you getting a picture up from somewhere? <laughs> Clicking I'm, around. I'm, I'm saving that one to uh, hold it over you in case anything everything goes wrong. I just All got right. a photo of Sean's bath. Go, go <laughs> on, everyone. Go on. <laughs> All right. So tonight we have the usual eclectic mix of guests as arranged by Ash, which will be commencing at six o'clock. And we're going to give you the rundown of the guests momentarily and get into some of the top news stories of the week before the guests come in. Huge shout out to Amy in Alabama, whose birthday it is tomorrow. So I hope she has a good birthday and eats her vittles and grits and gets on with <laughs> Can you do the vittles and grits, Amy in Alabama accent, Andrew? What is vittles and grits? I'm Amy in Alabama. Like, have you never watched? You ever watched the Beverly Hillbillies? I'm saying, hey, Granny Moses, her Christmas victuals <laughs> recipe is like, that's what's popping up on Google. Oh my word, Sean, these are old references. So, welcome wherever you are in the world. And our first guest this evening is going to be one of the most requested, and he's brought on his co-host from his new podcast series, The Mars Chronicles. We are talking David Whitehead and Josh Reed. They will be asking whether there was an advanced civilization that once existed on Mars. Is there a connection between Mars, the story of Atlantis, and possibly even humanity's origins? And does Mars hold evidence of ancient cataclysm in our solar system that may explain numerous cataclysmic references in Earth's mythological and geological records? I'll hand the next guest intro over to you, Andrew. Well, it's only because it'll be uh, Mr. Steeples, um, independent journalist, and I've got this orange thing. I think it's for him, isn't it? That's what you were saying. Anyway, uh, people, that's, we're all orange for him because he likes to wear orange and all that, I think. <laughs> Unless this is all a joke at my expense and actually he hates orange. Um, he's an independent journalist, editor-in-chief of the Steeple Times. Everybody knows him on this channel because he's always popping on. Uh, he'll be stopping by to give us his thoughts on the Netflix documentary, Jimmy Savile, A True British Horror Story, as well as our very own documentary, Sean's on this fantastic channel, about the UK's most prolific sex offender, which Matthew also featured in as a talking head about that very subject. Yeah, and to everybody who's been supporting and sharing and liking our Savile documentary, Untouchable. It's yeah. got well over 100k views in a week, so massive thank you for everyone for spreading the word on that one. And if you've not seen it yet, it is on YouTube presently. It's had a few edits, the YouTube version, but you can uh, check it out. Uh, and the guest after Steeples is coming on with Andrew, and that is Norman Baker. Thank you, boy. The Baitmeister, the Baitmeister General, as I like to call him, political commentator Norman Baker, on next giving his take on the potential of Meghan Markle and Prince Harry 
doing a second Oprah interview. I mean, the first one was just unbearable, but they might do another one. What will that mean for their already fraught relationship with the monarchy? Other topics Norman will be discussing include the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Tour. I think that's her 300th year on the throne. And what that means for the taxpayer. Harry's relationship with Prince Charles will be going on about as well. And much, much more. It's going to be really, really interesting. Norman Baker's really good. Uh, good little comment there from Tommy DePuerta about Untouchable. Shocking but brilliant. It's, it's, it's quite a few hours. I've, a lot of people have been getting in touch with me saying, well done. I didn't have anything to do with it. But uh, people really, really enjoyed it, apparently, Sean. Yeah, it's the version that's on YouTube, I think, is three hours, 40 minutes long. And the structure that was put together by James, um, just, yeah, phenomenal, compelling. I didn't realise how powerful that structure was until I watched it, the premiere myself, last week. And... People are saying, you know, it's, it is really long, but we just can't stop watching it. So thank you, everyone, for getting on board with Untouchable. So at 8 o'clock, we're going to be switching over to Patreon. If you'd like to watch the exclusive Patreon content, we do cover subjects that we can't talk about on YouTube. There is a small stipend, a monthly stipend, to watch the Patreon content. Link is in the description box below the video. And it's thank you to the Patreons that that stipend adds up over a number of people to enable us to keep producing this great content. And the first guest um, coming on at 8.10 is someone I've wanted to have on for ages, actually, because I've been watching his stuff. And he's a former prisoner, JC. His YouTube channel is From Wrong to Strong. And he has built a career as a YouTuber after getting released from prison in Mexico. And from, you know... Having operations in Mexico, wild man, wild woman going in, in Mexican prison. One of my smugglers ended up in Mexican prison. I know my smuggler got, got stabbed quite quite fast. Uh, it's, it is a unique situation. I've spoken to quite a few people about Mexican prison stories. And it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot different down there. And you, you get to hear about that. All right, so then the next, next guest is Chris Todd, who allegedly was a mafia murderer accomplice with OJ Simpson. Chris met the stars, went to the parties, he's got the pictures to prove it tonight, he's going to be delving into the murky world of the former NFL star OJ Simpson and what might have really happened on that fateful mm. night. Mm. And then I'll let you introduce the next. Yeah, sounds fascinating that. Our next guest is, by the way, it's pronounced Stipend, isn't it? Uh, Stipend. Speaking pronunci- yeah. Speaking of pronunciations, <laughs> our next Thank guest you. is chaplain, author, and show host. Do you want to do with the honours, Sean? Jesse Zebodar. <laughs> Jesse Zebodar was a boater. Jesse Zebodar has worked with United States veterans in hospitals, hospices, and community settings for more than ten years. She now has her own ministry called Illuminate the Darkness and speaks weekly on five channels on YouTube and other media platforms. You can listen to Jesse's shows on The Reveal Report, Aquarius Rising South Africa, David Zublick and Carmen Studer and Right On Radio. On tonight's show, Jesse will be discussing the Luciferian Brotherhood and its structure, the occult in government and military position, the Masons, crimes against children hidden in our institution, institutions, such as human transporting is the word we're going with to not get kicked off YouTube, uh, abuse and cannibalism. Bloody wow. hell. Good grief. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Sign up to Patreon for that one. For the, that is uh, um, that is that is Jesse Sabota. The guest after that is equally macabre, Andrew. For the first time on the show, we will be delving into chaos magic. Our guest is Jason Luov, uh, the best-selling author of eight books. His latest is the widely acclaimed and unstoppably successful John D. And the Empire of Angels, a massive chronicle of Western civilization's obsession with the apocalypse. For the last 20 years, Jason has dedicated himself to exploring, reporting on, and teaching the world's sacred traditions, from indigenous shamanism to the Enlightenment traditions of India and Tibet, and Western magic and occultism. So that's and it's magic with a K at the end. So that makes it even even magicier, doesn't it? So that's going to be interesting. So that's the, f the full lineup for this evening. First two hours on YouTube, second two hours on Patreon. Patreon link is in the description box below this video if you're watching it on YouTube. And huge shout out and thank you to wherever you're watching it. Facebook, Twitter. Um, we're going to go over to, let's probably squeeze one or two news stories in before the first guest comes on. And Meghan Markle has had to remove all references to her doomed Netflix animation show, Pearl from the Archwell website after the woke production was axed by Netflix. So that Pearl was the title for the Markle created show, which was officially canceled last week as part of a wave of cutbacks promoted by Netflix's drop in subscribers. And they're blaming a lot of these woke shows now being unrealistic, going too far and causing the, this, uh, viewer drop and subscription drop at Netflix. So a description uh, of the series under the actual production subsection was nowhere to be found on the website. A quote, like many girls her age, our heroine Pearl is on a journey of self-discovery as she tries to overcome life's daily challenges. A quote read, which has now been removed. The, qu the quietly deleted references come a week after Netflix announced the cancellation of the show, which add Megan as an executive producer. What do you think about all this woke stuff going too far then, Andrew? It does my head in, really. And, and it doesn't have to be woke. I think it's got just any ideology where super rich elite people lecture the rest of us. I'm not really, I'm not interested. And it's, it's not just Megan who's just done nothing in her life except married someone who's, who's also done nothing in his life. But it's also <laughs> <laughs> executive. <laughs> Andrew's on fire tonight, hitting them hard. Kick it off. Kick it off. I'm, I'm tired of sitting on the fence. I'm not sitting on the fence anymore. Not on this show. Um, it's, it's executive produced by David Furnish, who you may know as the, the partner of Elton John. And I just think, firstly, look, I don't expect them to just sit on their bottoms and do nothing. They've got to live their lives. They've got ambitions and that they want to do things as well. But there are plenty of people who are cartoon makers, cartoon writers and animators who are desperate for work right now they don't that those very few spaces taken up by elton john's husband and prince harry's wife who might have some indistinguishable talent for cartoon making but i very much doubt it and as for the woke stuff i really like what ricky Gervais, you know when he got up at the golden globes and he just said like come up get your award and thank you god and f off because the rest of us we don't want to hear you lecture the rest of us you'd all work for isis if you could so done with them <laughs> I'm done with them and I'm done. I, I don't want to see Megan's woke thing and it does annoy me because you know TV I'm a TV maker myself 
and it was supposed to be about good TV and good films, and it's an art form in itself. And it's become about activism. It's become about telling everyone how they should behave. And the whole point is we're supposed to all behave differently. We all have different ways that we think the world should work. We have different ideologies. We don't want one huge big corporation with all the money in the world lecturing us about woke values and stuff. Just naff off. So that's what I think. What do you think, mate? <laughs> yeah. I'm speechless, man. I'm, a, I'm in the, the middle of retitling uh, the tonight's episode, Andrew Unleashed. <laughs> Unleashed, mate. <laughs> I, I, can see, I can see Matthew Steeples in the waiting room. I don't know if he's um, just testing his tech, but, but, but Matthew, if, you, if you're listening, it, you, you're scheduled to come on at 7 p.m. So if you're testing your tech, that's fine. Otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna bring you in at seven p.m. because we've got David White coming in next. Couple of, I'll, I'll try and squeeze a few more minutes out of this story then. So uh, the the original <laughs> announcement that, that Megan was on the website. I'm thrilled that Archwell Productions partnered with the powerhouse platform of Netflix and these incredible producers will together bring you this new animated series which celebrates extraordinary women throughout history. Well, what's she done? That's extraordinary. As a <laughs> She didn't Google the royal family. That's quite extraordinary. Who <laughs> has not? <laughs> what has she done, though? And I'm also annoyed. I'm offended on behalf of cartoon makers, but I'm also offended as a podcaster because they got some huge deal from Spotify to make podcasts. They haven't even followed through. They made one episode, which was them announcing they were going to make episodes. And it's been about eight months you, you and I do. How many people do we each interview each week on your and my other podcast? We're sitting there working our bottoms off, and we're not, you know, we don't have a grandpa who sits on a golden throne, as Prince Charles was doing this week, lecturing us about poverty. It's, he couldn't make it up. What kind of stippen stipend was she getting for, for just sitting on her ass and not? From, <laughs> did she get some oh. mad half, half a billion dollar payment or something, didn't both of them, for a podcast yeah. that they did an hour of? Over over the years, do some work, Meghan and Harry. Do some real life grafting. Try and make it on your own. I I, I'd have so much respect if they could find a way to to change their identity so no one recognises them and go out and get a job. Otherwise, I don't want to hear from them ever. (laughs) Pearl was set to see a young girl inspired by Meghan, whose name means Pearl in Welsh, take on various social injustices while highlighting the work of feminist icons. Well, you know, feminist icons will be, you know, shaking in their graves right now. The idea of (laughs) Megan, a woman who married a king and just sat there doing nothing. Feminist icons did some amazing things over the last 100 years. The suffragettes, incredible. Some of them put their lives on the line. There was that woman who got hit by a horse, I think, or something like that. Not that my my history's not great, but I know they did a lot of stuff that she's not bothered doing. So I'm not having it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the streaming giant shelled out a hundred million dollars in the deal with the Duke and Duchess of Sussex in September 2020. Well, I, I imagine they've given all that money to social injustice, then, have they? Because <laughs> it's a lot of money, by the way. That's a lot of money. A hundred million. They could give everybody watching this, you know, about a million a year. <laughs> you know, almost almost two years later. The Duke and Duchess are yet to produce any published content for Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a joke. A hundred million for Scotch Mist. Oh, wow. Is is Scotch Mist, does that mean nothing? Yeah. 
I never heard that. I like that. Yeah. I learn a lot on this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it is absolutely mad. The whole thing's mad. I'm not having it and I'm not doing it anymore. The, the king and queen, they're all, they get, get rid, done. No wonder Netflix share prices nosedive from almost 700 to 350 is slashed in half. Pissing money in the wind at the Royals. So that's what yeah. they get. Yeah. Right, I, I can hear um, beeps indicating that our two guests are about to come on for the right. first section. I'm so, out of it, mate. Enjoy Andrews. yourself. Um, have a lovely time, and I'll be back in an hour. Adios, my friend. Ba 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 ba. All right, so if you are watching, as we announced earlier, if you've just jumped on the stream, we have now got the first section. David Whitehead and Josh Reed. They've released a new podcast series, The Mars Chronicles. And was there an advanced civilization existed on Mars? A connection between Mars, Atlantis, humanity's origins. Does Mars hold evidence of ancient cataclysm in our solar system that may explain numerous cataclysmic references in Earth's mythological and geological records? So we're going to have these guys on for an hour right now. It is a real honor. Whenever David comes on, my mind is just absorbing all the information. And um, everyone's saying, get David on for longer. And it's a real, real honor that he's brought Josh on as well. So let's, let's bring him through now. Here we go. Hey, Josh, how's it going, David? It's good, Sean. How are you doing? Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Really pumped to have you guys back, to have you back, David, with Josh. Uh, the viewers have been going mad, asking us to get deeper into this Mars stuff since we had you on the other week. So, uh, firstly, Dan, are you guys okay to just say a little bit about the project? You know, what, how it came about, what got your interest in this? David? Sure. Well, it actually happened uh, spontaneously on another show that Josh and I were doing where we were talking about ancient serpent cults. And it was sort of a long podcast. We were having a good time. And then Josh dropped some stuff about Mars just out of the blue. And I was like, oh, my God, we can't get into that now because we're going to end this show. That means we have to do another show on this. And that other show turned into a whole series that we're just going to see how long it goes. We've got guests booked. We've had we just had Mike Barra on the show. Josh and I did some presentations, just throwing out different theories and ideas on the subject um and yeah it's just one of those spontaneous things that uh it's been pretty exciting so far to dig up this research that both josh and i've been looking into for quite some time yeah so josh how did you guys click up and become this powerhouse martian team um well you know david uh i have known about david for a long time he, he's a co-host on the enslaved podcast with uh, michael tessarian which michael tessarian is one of the uh, the heart of my research for almost two and a half decades. Um, I started researching this stuff a long, long time ago, back in the 1990s, and first came, across, came, came upon Michael Desarian, David Icke, all these guys. Um, and uh, so I knew about David, and he had reached out to me because we were doing some information on the, the Q stuff back in 2017, 2018, um, which I would probably be, I guess, considered one of the subject matter experts on the topic. And uh, had we came on his show, and that topic really didn't go about Q. It really went towards the occult and the esoteric <laughs> mysteries, which had been the front of what I've been looking into for two and a half decades. And so me and David came together like that. We've been doing shows uh, occasionally ever since and we just decided to do this series which is fantastic because it's not only about mars it's earth it's the moon it's mars it's the universe it's the galaxy it's questioning this this 
evidence of ancient civilizations on Earth, these remnants on Mars and on the moon and saying, you know, is is this real or is this not real? And then we actually add a lot of the occult sciences into this and the esoteric mysteries into it that kind of maybe uh, coordinate that this was actually ancient civilizations or even something more modern. So David and Josh's links will be in the description box below this video if you want to go over and support their work, their socials, and watch the series. But we're going to get into some of it now. So what actual evidence, what's the most compelling evidence that there was advanced civilization on Mars? Well, there's so many places to start. I mean, uh, we I started looking into the subject of Mars back in the Richard Hoagland days. Everybody remembers Richard Hoagland. He's still kicking around. He's doing his own show still, which I'm glad to hear. Um, and he was a science writer for Walter Cronkite. He was right there at ground zero for all the lunar missions and everything. And then he basically stumbled. He was totally against any kind of conspiracy when it came to NASA. But when he started to get in the inner workings and see what was going on, he actually realized, oh, my God, it's uh, quite a lot of these different things that they're hiding. Um, he never went to the point of saying, which a lot of people I think that come in now are saying, which is that NASA lied about 100% of every single thing they've ever shown us. He didn't go there. I don't go there either. There's many reasons for that. But um, he, so, so he started digging up these photographs uh, collected from you know various missions that were conducted by NASA, as well as other space agencies. And he wrote the book Dark Mission and brought out a lot of those, you know, basically the mathematics, the geometry of a lot of these structures that are photographed on both the moon and Mars, which oddly enough resemble the geometry of, and even some of the actual shapes like pyramids, etc., of ancient structures on this planet, ancient cyclopean ruins uh, that are still in debate today and still are, we're mostly left with not really a satisfying explanation to my mind at least. So when I looked at his work on it, that's what got me curious. And then you start going down the rabbit hole, Sean, you start listening to different varieties of opinions on the matter. There's different whistleblowers. Um, so, you know, you start with, uh, if I started with the ancient myths and legends, which uh, this is what we do on Unslave with Michael Tessarian is we go into these ancient myths and legends and Josh is very well versed in these things as well. And that's where I started was like, okay, what do the ancient peoples say about earth history and some of the cataclysms or possible visitation by other beings, et cetera. And it's ubiquitous. It's universal. It's all across the world. Every ancient culture talks about advanced beings, either living on earth prior to the advent of human 2.0 or, um, you know, we're visiting earth from other worlds. This was ubiquitous. There's different fairy tales about it, but it's all the same thing. So that's where I started. I went, okay, maybe these aren't just a bunch of campfire tales that scientists and geologists and historians like to throw out. Uh, maybe there's something to it that was told through mythological language, right? Which makes sense. Then the next phase was Richard Hoagland's work, bringing all these photographs, these anomalous photographs, I know everybody's got their thing. Some guys are like, oh, no, it's all just light and shadow and whatever. But you really dive into it. And the deeper you go in, you start to see that a lot of these anomalous structures just don't fit the, the they don't fit the uh, the perspective that this is all just random um, earth or planetary ge uh, geology or rocks or mountains. So that's where I started. And then, you know, there's so many other elements. And that's why we need this series to kind of flesh it all out, hear all the perspectives. Not every perspective we're going to bring on is where everybody's going to agree. That's not what this is about. This is about Josh and I dumping all this research on the table and then saying to the audience, you know, what do you think? You know, are, are there, is there, 
is there mysteries in our solar system that actually explain mysteries on our planet and maybe even our origins? I think there are, but we let the audience decide. Yep. So Josh, what's the most compelling evidence you've come across of advanced uh, civilizations? Well, I mean, that, that's a, that's a big question. I mean, on earth, on moon or the Mars on Mars, um, you know, I remember watching Buzz Aldrin and he was doing an interview and he goes, we need to go to Mars. Have you seen this? There's a monolith on the moon of Phobos. We need to go check that out and look at that. And to me, I was like, wait a minute, what did he just say? <laughs> and so, you know, I, I had read Dark Mission during this time and I had understood the hyperdimensional physics that uh, Richard Hoagland talks about. I had understood that he's looking at various types of land spots, geographical spots on Mars that had 90 degree angles. God doesn't make 90 degree angles. It doesn't happen naturally in formation. We know that the universe has a certain creative principle to it, but it doesn't go about and start creating these geographical 90 degree angles, as well as certain types of numbers that are repeated throughout these uh, different types of structures that you'd see on Mars, 19.5 being one of them um, and, and these other numbers, right? The, the phi ratio and so forth pi phi ratio these types of numbers are found on mars between structures and when you start seeing that 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 is not a representation of god's natural creative ability but in the sense of some type of intelligence design as well as mars is considered a dead planet now if we look through our solar system at all the planets you don't see any dead planets every planet is incredibly active and so it doesn't really make sense that Mars is a dead planet unless something happened, some type of cataclysmic event. And this was like kind of where I started the research. I, I, I wasn't even looking for Mars. And I came across Michael Tessarian actually talking about the destruction of Tiamat. And Tiamat is this mythological story from the Enula Elish where Tiamat is this goddess who is destroyed by another god known as Marduk. Marduk is the son of Enki. Um, and the ruler of Babylon during this time. And basically what happens is there's this, and you kind of read the Anula Elish, and it talks about this long progressive war that goes about and how Tiamat is battling um, the, these, these bad guys, Marduk and all of them, because they killed Absu. And at the end of it, it looks like that Tiamat wages a final battle, right? And this is the dragon in the sky, wages a final battle and is finally destroyed by Marduk, who splits her in half. And, you know, Michael Desarian comes about this, and there's multiple points of research pertaining to why he believes this, is that there was once a planet that existed between Mars and Jupiter, a massive water planet, and it was somehow destroyed either through war or cataclysm. And then this planet basically broke apart, created water comets that basically smashed into the other comets. And this created a lot of the cataclysms that we potentially saw in the lower driest period. Now, this also pertains to a lot to what Balikoski said, right? Worlds in collision with a big comet flying by Earth and basically causing upheals and cataclysmic events, causing a big flood, these types of things. And so one of the things that we look at is what were these stories literal? Or not literal, but kind of like contextual in the sense of telling the story of something that happened a million years ago, 500,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago in the history of Earth. Um, and, and I think it's safe to say that there is some relevance to this. Now, we were actually talking to Mike Barra last weekend 
And so this has been my theory is that Tiamat was Mars or Mars was a moon to Tiamat. Mike Barr comes out and goes, no, I think, I think Mars was a moon to another planet that existed there and it was destroyed and this is why it's all, and I'm like, there it is, right there. It was kind of funny, Josh, that you kind of started, it was episode one, you threw that out, was like, yeah. oh, I think it was, a, and then we kind of went through, and I forgot that you brought that forward. And then Bara comes out and he's like, yeah, I think that the, I think Mars is a moon of a, a bigger planet and that the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, Josh, did you hear what he just said? And Josh is like, dude, episode one. I'm like, oh, my God, you said the same yep. thing. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. But go ahead, Sean. Sorry. No, go. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, yeah. Well, so when we start looking at a lot of this in the sense of mythological history. Um, we start seeing that they're trying to tell us a story. So one of the things that I've been really, really deep investigation as well as David is kind of like what I call investigative symbology, investigative mythology, um, and, and really just looking at these stories and trying to find contextual relevance. Now, one of the things that I've noticed throughout the years is that when you start looking at the various different cultures, I mean, you're talking about a 4,000, 5,000 year gap between all these mythological stories that all come about. But you start seeing these parallels between these gods and these goddesses. And what we discovered is about 12 to 15 different gods or goddesses that have various attributes that are just repeated in different cultures. And what they do is they repeat these, they'll take a god and goddess and they'll adopt it and they'll add cultural attributes to it. So they'll add their various uh, flavors, if you want to it, as well as an astral theological context to that God in the sense of the anthropomorphication of what it is. But if you get down to the heart of these different gods and goddesses that they're actually talking about, all they are are basically representations of stories, stories of something that happened in the past. And you got to remember in, in Greek literature, everything ends with, with cataclysm. Everything ends in disaster. And you got to ask yourself, was there something in Earth's history? Now, myself, I I've always felt that there was something um, bigger. Like humanity has am amnesia or something. That there's, there's something wrong with the world. There's something missing. There's something off. Our history, we've been lied to about our history. And I know everybody out there feels the same way. I was in the military, Sean, and I was getting out. And I had to go get an eye, eye appointment to the eye doctor. And it was a really sunny day in Washington, D.C., and the sun was beating down. And I'm, like, squinting, and I couldn't see anything. And I'm, like, see a bird fly by, and I see a dog walk by. And they're not squinting at the sun. And I go, how many animals on this planet um, have adapted evolutionary to the sun? Every single one of them. Every single one of them. No, no animals squint to the sun. Our skin burns in the sun. And so I go in there and I'm talking to the doctor and I said, Hey, I, I got to ask you a question. I said, uh, you believe in evolution? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And I said, okay, great. Um, tell me how man evolved on this planet to not adapt their eyes to the sun as well as their skin to the sun. And she goes, well, probably because we invented hats. And I said, well, no, that came along way after. She goes, well, you know, the, the modern theory is that we grew up in very, very dark, rigid forests. I said, okay. So I go home and I start looking at different types of animal life in rigid forests. And guess what? They've all adapted to the radiation of the sun on this planet, except for humanity. So I started realizing that we came from somewhere probably a little bit colder with less solar radiation. And if we know Mars, if Mars had an atmosphere, there would be less solar radiation. It would be a lot dimmer. And our sun would be more absorbent or the sun would be more conducive to our body type. So I, I truly believe that we evolved on a different planet than earth and that we somehow 
got to Earth. So there's a long chain of, of DNA that's spread throughout. David, earlier on, you said there was a commonality between the stories of ancient civilizations, the same theme. What is the most ancient civilization that has documented that theme that you've come across? Well, they often refer to like the Egyptians or the Sumerians, right? The Sumerian texts. But um, in my work with Michael Desarian and other researchers from the Western world, uh, they would talk also about the Bach people. You know, the ba we did a whole series called the Bach Saga, which uh, if that ends up being dated correctly and ends up being true, that would predate those civilizations. Um, there's connections between Egypt and Ireland that a lot of people are not aware of which would also indicate that maybe some of the high culture that was in Egypt was also influenced by people from the West as well. Um, and vice versa, people from the East going to the West. We see, uh, you know, you've got like Maritatan princess, uh, daughter of Akhenaten buried in County Kerry, Ireland. Why is that? Why are there red haired mummies with Druidic bard and bardic, uh, you know, jewelry and, and regalia and ceremony buried in Egypt? Uh, you know, so there's, there's connections that are there that, you know, you start bringing in a whole other chapter of history. So to, to nail it down, uh, we also have to talk about the missing chapters of history. This is where you get into the Atlantean theory and all of that. And, um, and there are many other words for Atlantis, by the way, that you'll find throughout various ancient cultures, whether you're going into ancient India or, or even in some of the Asian continents or the Western continents, you're going to find these references to lost, uh, lost technology, lost high civilization. They weren't writing about a time where the caveman ruled the planet the way science does. They, they wrote about a time of high culture, high technology, um, and then something happened. And then you start getting into the underground world of things where you find all of these cities and, and you know, all these different places that are built into the earth, like in Derinkuyu, Turkey, et cetera. We spoke about that last time. So um, the, the most ancient to me would be where we're trying to get as much information we can about the missing chapters of history that come before, or they would come post-Diluvian, right? Or post-cataclysm. Post um, and then the debate is, what was the cataclysm? Are the myths true when you get into the Ramayana and the Puranas and when they talk about the battle of the gods? Or are that, is that a mythological story talking about cometary destruction on the planet um, that was then anthropomorphized into these characters? I kind of think it's a bit of both uh, if you if you look at it all. But uh, when you take from all of these, this is where it gets fun. It's not pinning down one culture and saying, oh, they've nailed it, the whole thing. When you take the stories from the Bach people and the Sumerians and the Egyptians and even the Greeks and the, the later groups and then you and the ancient India and the text coming out of there, like there was a, I'm trying to remember his name. I've got some notes on this uh, where there was a, an Indian scholar. He was a Sanskrit scholar. And he wrote the fact that he's like, after studying, studying the Indian ancient tradition for as long as I have, I've concluded that our history is loaded with references talking about ancient advanced civilizations and off-world beings coming to influence the history of Earth. And so, you know, there's so many of these references. When you put it all together and you see patterns, you know, they might name the god something different or they might name the character different or they might have a different story around the same central theme. But just look at all the stories they're telling you, you know, like the Marvel Avengers series or any of these pop culture movies. It's all the same myths and legends coming from these ancient times, just recast with Thor and the Hulk and Superman and Batman or whatever. But it's all the same stories. So my question is, who were the gods 
What is this obsession that humanity has for living on its knees, worshiping otherworldly beings that have some kind of an, uh, an advantage over humanity or that we believe that progenitors of humanity come from the sky? What is with that? We look, when we go, we talk about heaven. We go, oh, heaven, it's up there. And hell is down there. Like that's just the basic logic you get from people. But you go, well, what does that word heaven mean? You get into the etymology. What did they mean when they said heaven? What did they mean when they said God's? What are these references in the Bible even about, because the Bible's meant to be based on a monotheistic ideology of religion, but yet you find out it's, no, no, it's henotheistic. It was a selection out of other gods that were believed in at the time. And they talk about the Elohim, which is a plural term in the ancient Hebrew. Who are the Elohim? What is the creator God coming down and saying, let us make man in our image? If he's the God, why is he saying us and our when you get into these terms and you just get into this stuff and you find it in all these different cultures and religions and you go, maybe they're all telling us the same damn story. It's just with different coloring and different characters, just like we do with movies. We keep telling Batman. How many Batmans are there now? For crying out loud, the guy in Twilight is the new Batman. Like we've had so many Batman, but what's so important about the story? Why does it keep interesting people? Why does it keep selling out? Why is Star Wars and Star Trek and these shows and Marvel, why does that ping all of, all of us to a point where they're blockbuster films? Well, I think it's because there's a layer of truth to it all. It's just told in a mythological way as the ancient stories were. So sort of a lot there, but that's kind of my best shot at that. Well, before we go to this question that the viewers sent in, then, so does this relate to Jungian archetypes? Hmm. Oh, yeah, I could say a lot on that. I mean, the Jungian archetype, he would, some people might look at Jung's theory and say, well, none of it's real, Dave. It's all archetypes. Like it's all projection. It's all psychological projection. But Jung was so good at talking about these other dimensions. And he was also talking basically the dimension of the psyche, right? About how we view. It's because the, the psyche is our lens of viewing reality. We don't actually see through just our eyes. We see through our brain. So when you bring that in, you go, oh, psychology really does play a part here. So getting into those archetypes, my thing is maybe those archetypes were a product of two things. They were a product of us dealing with ancient traumas and, and, and the need to tell stories and communicate and express ourselves, etc. And then we have these different layers of archetypes within our psyche. But then maybe a lot of those stories and archetypes were built upon an actual literal foundation of real experiences that were possibly had by ancient cultures that they mm -hmm. came later, right? Like one way I look at it as, you know, the movie Star, Star Trek, the new movies, I think it's the first or second one where they're going over and well, this, they did this in the show too, but they're flying over this primitive planet where the people there are still, you know, living out in the wilderness and they look up and they see the Star Trek trick the Starship Enterprise come over and they start worshiping, worshiping it as a God. And that scene made me think about even the fact that in places like Papua New Guinea and many other places, there are still tribal cultures there that haven't really embedded into modern civilization that worship aircraft that fly over and do airdrops and things like that. And they have a whole, it's like a whole religion based on worshiping aircraft. <laughs> well, just a basic chain of logic could tell you that if, a, if, a, if mankind in that ancient time um, was, you know, they didn't have IMAX, they didn't have television, they didn't have the internet, they had another way of viewing, they were much more integrated with nature. They would have viewed anything out of the norm as being otherworldly or God, the world of the gods affecting the world of man. Um, 
So, but does that mean that that is the literal truth of what they were saying? That there was literally a God named Thor or literally a God named this or a goddess named that? Or was that all a combination of man interpreting real world events with those archetypes of the psyche, which is probably how they even got there. And then they told the story and that's why it looks the way it does. And I, that's also, if that's true, that's why we can't just throw all these myths, legends, and scriptures out. We have to actually look at them and say, maybe they're trying to tell us something. Yeah. It's a transmission of knowledge. Definitely. So Heli, as I'm going to butcher this, aren't I? This pronouncing. What about the Gobekli Tepe? Gobekli Tepe. Gobekli Tepe. Turkey, twelve thousand year old temple ruins. Yeah. Josh, so, take this one. Yeah, this was discovered uh, a while back, and uh, before this point in time, archaeologists, you know, thought that uh, civilization started 5,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent Valley, right? Uh, and then Gobekli Tepe comes about and they start uncovering this, this vast city that was hidden under dirt. And they start finding various artifacts. They start dating it around 12,000 years. I would say that it's probably much, much older, that it was probably buried about 12,000 years ago. And uh, something buried it. They think that it was intentionally buried. Um, but this gives rise to this, these same things that we're talking about now. Um, you know, go to the the Sphinx and how they've water water erosion dated the Sphinx to what is it, twelve thousand five hundred years, ten thousand five hundred to twelve thousand five hundred years ago, around the same time as Gobekli Tepe. And so we start seeing the same type of architecture, the same type of symbology, it spread throughout the entire world in the sense of ancient ruins that are now destroyed. Uh, they just discovered this uh, this yellow brick road they believe to be the road to atlantis underneath the ocean you got various different types of uh, things being discovered around the ocean from pyramids off of the coast of, of florida to off the coast of japan to uh, everywhere else on this planet in the sense that something happened that caused rising ocean waters to basically overtake old coastal lands and then bury you know, produce maybe a mud flood or some type of great flood, which if you have a flood and a lot of water coming into land, you're going to have a lot of dirt that's kicked up and that dirt can easily bury old cities and buildings and these types of things. And I think this is exactly what we're seeing. And with Gobekli Tepe, another point of this is they haven't uncovered all the city yet. They've only uncovered a certain part of it and they don't want to. Archaeologists don't want to go back in and dig out up more of the city because they're afraid of what they're going to find. And what I think they'll find is there is a highly advanced civilization on this planet a long, long time ago that was more spiritually inclined and technologically advanced than we actually are today, but in a completely different perspective. It wasn't uh, about... Uh, computers and cell phones, but they had some type of other technology that was, I believe, kind of more biological in nature. Um, and, and to you know, David's point here, he was talking about Hollywood a minute ago. Have you ever noticed with all these Hollywood movies, the Marvel and the DC, it's all about saving Earth. Every single time, it's about saving Earth. Mm -hmm. why, why are the gods the saviors of Earth? And you have to wonder, you know, it's other gods that are trying to destroy Earth and these other gods that are saving Earth. Um, and so, and, and then also you mentioned the, the Yunyan archetypes. Did you ever notice that there's 12 of them? And interesting no, point, isn't it? Do you want to run them down? Well, there's 12 of them. But here's the thing is uh, one of my points of, uh, of investigation was in the Solomon's Temple. Um, and th this was a, a topic that fascinated me. 
And I started researching this, and I realized that when you get back uh, Josh in and Boaz, the, the two cherubims that guard the door of Solomon's temple, is that you go into the 12 houses of bread, and you have to navigate the 12 houses of bread before you can get to the Holy of the Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and I started realizing that this was a, a larger interpretation of something. And during this time in my, my hermetic voyage, uh, my Rosicrucian voyage, right, I started to realize that a lot of what they were talking about was various aspects of the mind. And so I started looking at the Zodiac. There's 12 constellations in the Zodiac. There's 12 disciples of Jesus. And I started to realize that what we're actually talking about is the inner Zodiac. The, the tarot, if you want to call it that. And this is what you, uh, Carl Jung was actually talking about, is these, these zodiacal symbols, the tarot, astrology, all these things. They're not pertaining to the movement of the stars in the heavens out here, but instead of the movement of the stars in heavens in relation to your internal um, your internal configuration of who and what you are. And that humanity, in our spiritual sense, is we have 12 various archetypes of mind that we go through. And we're born into this world with a certain configuration of these archetypes. And it's our job, it's our journey through our spiritual progression towards that learning of who the self is to actually navigate all 12 of these archetypes and master them to a certain level and degree. And this is where the arising of the 13th archetype comes about. And this is kind of what Jesus would rep represent in Christianity. You have the 12 disciples and then you have Jesus. And then you have uh, the Holy of Holies at the end of the houses of bread. And this is the contract of God. This is the, the containment of God, of where God exists. And I believe that this is what they were talking about in the ancient uh, writings, the esoteric mysteries, in finding the self. The self is the first part of finding and understanding what God truly was. Um, and I'm not talking about some God that sits in the freaking clouds and shoots lightning bolts when you're bad. I I'm talking about a, a non-partial God, a God that does not interfere with the creation except puts about a set of rules and laws in the universe which we abide by called natural law and this is how the progression of evolution of consciousness comes about is through the progression of those laws and that we have an impartial god a creator uh, i call totality or absolutism that basically because i'm watching a lot of the comments that that created it all and, and really didn't create it all it's just always existed and there's just there's no logic to it because there can't be but anyways i wanted to touch on the the union part as well the, the carl Jung thing yeah, thank you for that. This is definitely one of the most fascinating interviews we've had on the channel. And it's not just the knowledge, which is phenomenal, but also you guys' energy, your enthusiasm and passion for it. Um, before we go over to Atlantis then, David, perhaps could you just, you, you mentioned earlier, the, the, was it the Bach or the Bach people? Who were who they? Where in the world were they? Well, the Bach people would have been, I guess, uh, they would have been where... Europe, like Scandinavia, uh, Ireland, uh, Scotland, Wales, the, the ancient peoples, the, basically the, the progenitors of the Druidic cultures that was wiped out by the Vatican under, you know, these different Roman emperors and whatnot, and the whole British Empire at that time, uh, because that was a competing uh, group. Those were competing groups and bloodlines and families that would have basically uh, left the Roman Empire irrelevant, you know, in terms of their spiritual knowledge and all of that. And so they had to destroy them. And in fact, the Vatican is built on top of a Mithraic temple. That Mithraic temple is built on top of ancient Druidic uh, Bach temples. So they're the, they would be the ancient lineage peoples uh, to that. And what would it be? It would be uh, the northern, 
I'm trying to think of the right word for this. There's an ancient legend that comes out of there. It's been a while since I've covered that subject. We did a bunch of interviews on it. Um, but there is the, uh, what do they call it? The, it'll come is to this, me. There's sort is of this the Etruscan idea. mysteries? No, no. It's, it's like where they came from. Like the, oh, the Arctic homeland, the idea of the Arctic homeland, that there was, a, there was the Arctic homeland before. So before whatever happened to the Arctic, but froze over top of it. There was a, uh, the idea there was a vast civilization that was there. Um, they're finding, you know, rainforest buried under the ice, etc. So the idea was, were, were the Bach peoples connected or were they those peoples that were inhabiting those lands and were some of those Western peoples, did they migrate after the cataclysm and, and then populate other areas? Mm -hmm. And this is where you get the story of the high Arya, which the Arya weren't like just one race. They were a cast of people that had this ancient knowledge from these Atlantean or pre-Diluvian times, these ancient times. And they started moving around and spreading and migrating around and, and basically leaving those teachings and those histories with the different priest classes in those areas. And even in India, you know, they say that the Sanskrit language did not originate in India. It was brought to India by the Arya. There's those stories as well. And those Arya would have been these ancient peoples that came yeah. from the Arctic homeland and the, and the north. So um, lots of interesting things to get in. One thing I wanted to say about the 12, uh, just on a for the scientifically minded people, uh, do you know how many cranial nerves you have in your head? 12. 12, oddly enough. How um, many strands of DNA? 12. <laughs> 12. <laughs> so as we go on and on, 12 tribes of Judah, tri you know, the whole thing, the, the yep. 12 is very important. The 12 Zodiac, of course, there were more than 12 in the ancient right. Zodiac, by the way, but the 12 major uh, Zodiacal signs are allegedly, a, in, or not allegedly, under what Josh was saying, um, and again, my colleague Michael Tessarian wrote an article called The Inner Zodiac. He was talking about that, the, the projection of the inner world onto the outer world. And uh, so I think that all that brings a, a different layer of discussion to how we interpret ancient myths because we now are bringing in the actual psychological framework and foundation of how those myths were produced. And then the trauma and the cataclysms and the possible interventions that may have happened that produced that. And then lastly, about Gobekli Tepe, um, there's a lot of talk. And I mean, I don't know, nobody does, but there's a lot of talk in the, in the sort of, you know, alternative community, UFO community about Gobekli Tepe being some ancient high temple of, of uh, you know, ponies and rainbows. But I've actually found some interesting evidence indicating that at least some at some point in the history of Gobekli Tepe, there were mass ritual sacrificing of women and children at that site. And they found all kinds of skulls. There's a bunch of science that got into it. And I got into that work and my whole cults research getting into, uh, you know, the, the history of where a lot of the lineage of these cults could be coming from. And Gobekli Tepe may, may well have been at least at a certain point, maybe later on. Maybe it started as a high culture item and then it was later on converted into a ritual sacrifice, which happens a lot, by the way. A lot of the monuments and the churches and the locations for certain things were put there because there's the idea that there are basically like acupuncture like points across the planet, uh, which people call like the ley lines or the, um, you know, there's many names for it. But it's the idea that there's energy vortexes uh, on the planet and the ancient sites, these ancient ruins are built on these nodes, which is why they all have all these geometrical alignments. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of them would have been built for the purpose of creating the best resonant field for someone to commune with nature or God. 
but then could have later been turned into altars of human sacrifice and, and some great evil. Uh, cause that's what it is. It's about who controls the energy vortex of the planet of the sun, moon, and stars and of the psyche of humanity. I think that's what the big game is really. All does about. that include Sedona, Arizona? It does. Sedona, Arizona. Why it, it, it's it's on one of the, it's on one of the node points of the ley lines. Um, yeah, yeah so it I, is. I felt that when I was visiting there, what you oh, okay. described, I felt it. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So for people not familiar then, what is the story of Atlantis and how does that relate to Mars? Josh, go ahead. I, I can go, yeah. So th there's a lot of um, speculation about this. Obviously, Plato had mentioned the city, not necessarily by name, um, talking about it at, at the uh, the gates of Gibraltar. And uh, it really got rebirthed around the mid-1800s by a woman by the name of Madame Blavatsky. Um, and what they were doing is they were really going deep into uh, the occult mysteries and they were utilizing a mechanism of channeling to basically go in contact these ancient beings these ancient gods these ancient uh, pharaohs and asking them questions and one of the people that they they channeled was apparently someone known as an Atlantean and they came out and described this vast city and this is where a lot of these writings in the sense of modern day interpretation of Atlantis come from um and I think what it is, is it's reminiscent in our psyche. I think it's something that exists within our psyche. I think a lot of what this channeling thing is, is really a connection with, I mean, the Akashic records, if you really want to call it. I think that there are some aspects of these beings that exist in the ether that we communicate with that maybe give us good or bad or uh, hurtful information. We were just talking about ritual sacrifice. So you can actually go into this and how this prescribes to that. But really what we had is there was an ancient civilization on this planet they called it Atlantis, um, and they had massive technology. Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Michael Sala, he talked about how Atlantis was actually in the South uh, South Atlantic and, and were, were, were actually South, South Pacific, very similar to where Australia and New Zealand are now, and that in one day it shifted from its point in a very tropical area to where it is now in Antarctica. And they believe that Antarctica is potentially this lost city of Atlantis with three miles of ice on top of it. Underneath it is this brilliant city and that the national science foundation, McMurdo based uh, all the military since Nazi Germany have been down there trying to excavate it and get this technology out of there. Um, so, you know, Atlantis is interesting, the Atlantis-Lumeria connection. Uh, there's another story and uh, that comes out of the Blavatsky times in the sense of Lumeria, which is the land of Mu, the people of Mu, and how these were warring factions. The Atlantis and Lumeria were at war, where Lumerians destroyed Atlantis. Um, I, I take this back in the context in the sense of cultural attributions with stories and legends, and we can derive this back to the same story of the Anula Alish of Tiamat and Marduk in the sense of warring factions. And it goes right back that one of these tribes or civilizations most likely, I think, was probably on Mars, where the other one was on Earth, and they were at war with each other. That basically one it, it's, this is kind of the perspective that I come about in the sense of it, the Atlantean story, because I think it's a truly older story than what's actually being told. 
And and this is what I've seen kind of in my my research and within my understanding of the knowledge base is that there was an ancient, highly advanced, technologically advanced and spiritually advanced civilization on Mars. They came to Earth and that on Earth, there was a very, very primitive civilization of which they set up a colony and a camp here and thousands upon thousands of years passed and the colony on Earth grew. They intermingled with the, the native species on the planet and, you know, humanity was born at that point. And then they revolted against Mars. After they revolted against Mars, Mars began to try to take back what was truly theirs, kind of like what... England and the United States did back in uh, 1775, <laughs> right? And uh, what happened is, is they killed the leader of that colony here on Earth as a sign to Mars to leave them alone. Mars struck back and they had some type of advanced technology that Mars used against them. And we can see this in the leash. And then they go back and fight back against Mars and destroy Mars in the process with some type of planet killing weapon that uh, I, I think we look at it in the sense as something that pulls the atmosphere out of a planet or destroys the atmosphere. So either a nuclear bomb or some type of, uh, I, I would assume that if it was a hydrogen or water-based planet, they, they could turn water into a hydrogen bomb and completely annihilate that whole planet. I don't know how they did it, but um, this is kind of what I've gotten through my research. And, and that would actually be the ancient legends and stories of Lumeria and Atlantis. And, and David, I know you got a completely different interpretation than me because we come from different lines of interpretation and understanding. So feel free to add in there and, and give your interpretation of Atlantis. Oh, no, I appreciate it. That's great. I mean, I think that's what this is all about. We're, we're peering into the ancient mysteries here. Okay. And, um, I, what I'm looking for is there's, there's two categories here. One is the category of information and knowledge that can't be known by human beings. Like there's just a limit to what we as human beings on this planet, even the top guys, the Illuminati, whoever you think there's a limit to what human humans can know about the, all these mysteries. But then there's what is known on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. By those that are keeping a lot of this from us. Um, and I want to know what's known. So I'm not asking the universe, tell me all the things that a human couldn't, couldn't possibly know. I just want to know why humanity has been kept in the dark and kept divided and fighting and killing each other for centuries over religions, over ideas, over all these different things. Look at the online world right now. Anytime you bring any stance or any theory on any single issue, you are going to be attacked relentlessly uh, by the people that hate you for bringing it up. It's normal. But what's the truth? What is the truth? I also think it's fascinating to look into these things. And what I've found is that when you look into these theories, you learn a lot about yourself in the process. And I think that's mm -hmm. possible. I just wanted to say that. When it comes to Atlantis, the way I view Atlantis is that, um, you know, I started with like Charles Berlitz and, and some of these great authors that brought it out, Ignatius Donnelly, um, Combs Beaumont, uh, some of these other guys, Michael Tessarian, obviously, who wrote a book called Atlantis. And what he does in that book is get into the, the, the bring all the pieces on the table, all the ancient legends and, and tell the story. The way I, when I put it all together, I see Atlantis not as just a singular place, a singular location on the planet. There obviously must have been like a home base, like Rome was located in Italy, you know, British Empire in the Britain Isles. But um, there, it, was a, it was an empire that had outposts all over the world as, and possibly even off world if, if we bring that element into it. Which, if that would be true, if this idea of a pre, a high level of civilization, pre some kind of either cataclysm or war, right? Like Josh was saying, maybe they blew Tiamat up or there was a war happening. 
there's that perspective. There's also just a simple perspective of it got destroyed by a comet. It got destroyed by some kind of natural catastrophe mm -hmm. that happened and it wrecked everything. And then all the myths and legends were just writings about all that. Either way, we're looking at a mystery that in modern science today, it's not looked at with any level of real credibility. It's just something that kind of gets laughed out of the room. Well, when you get into people like uh, David Hatcher Childress, who I highly recommend you bring on about this, he wrote lots of books about this and documented the corruption and scientific fraud conducted by like Smithsonian Institute, Vatican Connection, uh, and all this other stuff, where and these universities, these royal societies that were created to essentially uh, form the modern scientific world that we know now. Um, and when you look into the history of these, of how this rolled out, you find out that there's been nothing but violations of actual science, of the actual scientific method of trying to de determine what the truth is. There's been cover-ups. People have gone missing. People have been murdered. People have been slandered. High-degreed ar uh, archaeologists and historians have been, nobody's getting taught any of their work, right? And so I'm just personally a champion for those kind of people and those kind of theories because I just want to know why it's like today, you can't talk about certain hot button issues on YouTube, can you, Sean? Or you're going to get nuked on your channel. <laughs> Why is that? Why can't we talk about anything we want? We're trying to figure out what the truth is here, right? Well, it's because someone's trying to cover something up. And we kind of, we know that intuitively. So I tell people, if you think your news is fake and you think those fact checkers are annoying as hell, you know, the ones that only came online in 2020, um, and you, you think all the censorship is, is crazy. Well, just look at history. Look at these people we're bringing up, all these authors who've been slandered, censored, silenced, shadow banned well before it was cool. And what were they trying to tell you? A totally different perspective of human origins. Mm -hmm. Why is that not to be discussed? You're put into two pigeonhole arguments. One, creator, the God creation, the religious story, a literal interpretation of religion. That's one, one angle. The other angle is the materialist view that... There's nothing spiritual. There is no consciousness. There is no God. There's just matter and random accident. And it's the Darwinian evolutionary theory. Those are the two theories. Well, what if both of them are missing something and both of them cross pollinate with each other to form a new thesis where there actually is a combination of both mechanisms. There's a macro evolutionary process that's easy to see. But what about the, or sorry, the micro evolutionary process is what I'm talking about. The macro evolutionary process is where the debate takes place. And that's where we bring in the idea that let's say the universe has this natural unfolding evolutionary pattern to it, but then beings, living beings like us, human beings that have at least a certain amount of free will, I believe we have free will, um, are, can change. Look, the oceans, like we're polluting the oceans. We've got all these things going on. Humans are affecting life, right? The, the planet. So if other beings are seeded throughout our galaxy and our universe, could all of these different aspects change the order of history and the way things roll out? And then when you bring that on board, it starts to ask the question, well, maybe it's a combination of creation and evolution. And what if we bring in this idea of intervention and in lost ancient civilizations? That's a long way around to coming to the fact that what if, it's just a question, guys, everybody just relax. We're not making declarative statements here. What if the stories of Atlantis are true and more and we're just missing a lot of these pieces. And that story of Atlantis didn't just happen on our planet Earth, which is located on the outer rim of the Milky Way galaxy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you take on board the premise that we live in a universe teeming with life, 
And that universe has many levels and multiverse levels to it. Is it really so far-fetched for us to think that humanity is actually, humanity as we are now is new on the block, that there was older versions of humanity and that humanity wasn't only seated on this planet. If you bring that into the mix, now we got to look at all these things from a different perspective. And it always blows my mind how this theory is considered the most crazy, wacky theory of them all. It gets hate from every side, mainstream, alternate, doesn't matter. Why is this the one that freaks everybody out the most? And I think it has to do with our psychology and the fact that the human mind was traumatized in ancient times. It's been traumatized in modern times. And looking back at that scale of the size of the universe and the scope of what we're dealing with is traumatic, which is why we run to, let's go to the priests, let's go to the politicians, let's go listen to the media, let's, do, let's not... And, th and that's why we live like that. We, we ignore these big questions. So um, Atlantis to me is a bigger, bigger ball than just mm -hmm. one little place in the Atlantic Ocean by Portugal or whatever. It's, it's way bigger than that. And it might even go off planet in the end. I think people are obsessed with what's going on now in the context of recent history. And if we look at the theory of infinite time, it's beyond our comprehension. So infinite time would not preclude interplanetary and, and possibly even intergalactic war over over that much time you know how, how can we rule that out we can't because things would just be destroyed and you know rebuilded over so many years and there'll be no evidence of it and now we're building what we're building again now but what's gonna happen when all that gets wiped out and a million years from now there's different theories about what we were doing in the present day now or if we even existed and people are laughing at that so yeah, they find like a Pepsi can buried somewhere yeah. and they're like, what is this ancient <laughs> monument? Like, think about that, right? That's such a good point, Sean. Like when you think about it, really, like we're used to, humans are calibrated to our world, our reality. And that's how, and that's natural. You need to be or you'll go insane. But if you zoom out just a little bit and you go, yeah, wait a minute, where are we really? Like I brought this quote up in the beginning of my Cult of the Medics documentary series, and we're going to be revisiting in the later chapters, this idea from Charles Fort who was early 1900s. He was a paranormal researcher, writer. And he basically had a very shocking statement that I read years ago that just shook me. And it, now I could never unshake it, where he said, if you take it all into consideration, I think we're property. I think that we are living on somebody else's property, that at least they claim it. That's what their claim is. It doesn't mean it's true. It just means that's their claim. Um, uh, that but somehow all others are warned off and this is a controlled experiment that's happening. Or he also likened it to a human farm. Like it's like, there's a farming operation happening. Like, and I think about it like Jupiter ascending. Everybody out here, cause it's not just negative to this. It's just, we have to think about it that what if just as we humans, if we just look at ourselves, we can actually uh, unrail this. The, what did Mike Barra say, Josh, when we asked him, what do you think about aliens? Like, what's your best explanation to people that think you're crazy when you talk about alien stuff? And he goes, well, the fact that you and I exist is evidence enough for at least the possibility, the very strong possibility that we're not the only ones that exist because I'm not the only human that exists. Josh is not the only human. There are humans watching this. There are humans all over this planet. So mm -hmm. all we have to do is move the lens to a bigger scale. And all of a sudden it makes it at least possible uh, that we're talking about something way bigger here. And then if we look at, okay, now let's look at the activities of humans on the planet. What do we do? We, we use animals as resources. We use them as experimental subjects. 
look at what DARPA is doing, you know, blending fish and dolphin and human DNA and all this kind of creepy stuff. Um, we know we, we go to other countries on the planet and we milk them for resources. We invade, we enslave, we take over. Um, this has been happening for centuries. Uh, so when you think, well, if we human beings are doing these things, we're, we're already cloning sheep. We're, we're creating hybrids already. And it's 2022. What do you think we're going to achieve hundred years from now? And what if there's an advanced civilization only a hundred or 200 or maybe even 500 years ahead of us? And they look at this planet and they go, oh, there's lots of resources. Cha-ching. There's, it harbors life. It's the perfect life harboring planet with the right distance from the sun. Cha-ching. Oh, and also these beings have uh, DNA. And that DNA might be valuable to us. Sure. I'm just thinking from their perspective. It's just theoretical. And if that DNA is valuable to us, it might be valuable for a few different reasons. What are humans, what is, what is Elon Musk talking about right now? Guys, we eventually got to get off planet. Why? Well, because we need to find other humans need to explore. It's part of our thing. But we also, you know, we've damaged our DNA. We've damaged a lot of things on the planet. Um, and we have to seek other homes and we got to seek other resources. And it's just what humans do. Well, we're not, if we're not the only human or the only sentient being out there, is it really so far-fetched to think that some other planet might go just like we would look at Africa or some other country? Oh, look at those resources. Let's just keep those people dumbed down so we can go milk the resources. Why wouldn't they do it to a planet, you know? Yeah, so it, 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 it's repeated. Naturally when you think about this. And it's repeated through Hollywood. I mean, you can watch Jupiter Ascending is one that comes to mind. Stargate SG-1 series uh, is that humanity is an own planet and humanity itself are the channel or the resource. Um, so it's, it's not too far off to believe. Um, do, do I really believe in that? Um, well, it's potential. I think we can look at a lot of our mythology, a lot of these ancient stories and, and really pull that type of context out of it. Right. And I just want to add this in there. There was no coordination between me and David to where Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, the two best rock bands ever in the world, <laughs> who just both happen to be British on the show today. We did not coordinate this. It's just <laughs> one of those things. Not I mean, it's how the universe comes together. Synchronicity. Josh, what is your definition of ancient cataclysm? Um, something that happened in the past, I would say at least a, a minimum of 10,000 years ago, that created an upheaval on the Earth, whether it was earthquakes and, and uh, tsunamis uh, or even something even worse in the sense of solar flares. Um, or we could even look at it in the sense of man-made, nuclear disasters, those types of things. But it would be some type of global event that basically um, – halted the progression of evolution on this planet and probably killed a lot of species are we due for some more cataclysm um i do believe we are uh, david had mentioned our position in the galaxy um if anybody is uh familiar with mandela effects what david just did there is he actually talked about a mandela effect he said we are on the outer arm of the milky way galaxy actually no that we're not we're on the Orion arm. We're in the middle of the galaxy. This is a Mandela effect because I believe my whole life that we were on the outer arm of the galaxy. I remember Carl Sagan talking we're on the outer arm of the galaxy. We're not. We're actually in the middle of the galaxy, apparently. Um, and there was never any talk about us being on the outer arm of the galaxy. So me and David are from the, the same universe, and we somehow transferred over to this one uh, where we both <laughs> believe that we're on the outer arm of the galaxy. Um, and that is a true Mandela effect, by the way, just for people that didn't know that. 
Um, and I'm, I'm totally, hey, wherever we're situated, I'm yeah. using that as an example to say, guys, you ever seen how big like our galaxy is and how many galaxies there, there might be? That, that's all we're saying is it, we're a little speck in a massive oh, yeah. universe. And that also doesn't take away the value and the meaning and the relevance to our existence, by the way. I think a lot of people go there, but I don't believe that. Right. We've, um, we've, only, got, we've only got a couple of minutes left. What, what are the range of possible cataclysmic events that could happen? So I, I think there's ones that actually occur naturally through various types of uh, progressions through the processional cycles. And I think that this is a lot of what our ancient cultures were talking about. And this is why they kept highly accurate astronomical calendars. Um, when we start to look at our transit through the galaxy, we understand that the galaxy has black holes at the centers. There's a discretion disk that goes out there. It compresses gravity, mass, and energy at the center. And we transit that galactic center every so often. And so that means that we go through periods of high impedance within the galaxy and we go through periods of low impedance and if we actually map this out kind of very similar to how we map the moon out through the sky or the sun out through the sky if you put it at noon every day and you look you get what's called an analemma wave it's a figure eight that's actually created in the sky well our solar system if you observe it from outside of the galaxy we do the same thing which means that we have two equinoxes and two solstices. We have a summer and a fall in the sense of the Earth's transit, the solar system's transit through the galaxy. And I think that when we come out or when we go in and come out of those high periods of um, of impedance within the center of the galaxy is there's mass cataclysm. Um, and we can even see this through the historical record. We can see some type of mass cataclysm happening about every 10,000 to 12,000 years within the historical record. Um, I've had a few guests on my my shows that have came out and talked about this. Michael Cremol, Dave Hatches Triller will talk about it. Um, I had an NYU professor that came out and was actually talking about how we see it about every 12 to 15,000 years. There's some type of massive, uh, whether it's the magnetic fields shifting or what it is, there's some type of mass cataclysm event on this planet so i think that it's naturally inclined that our it's just our position in the galaxy that occurs and that our ancient ancestors were telling us about this and we forgot in about the information over time guys this has been mind-blowing i can't thank you enough can you just tell the viewers where they can find you support you and watch your series yeah, Josh actually just created a really awesome website, themarschronicles.com, and all the links are there. We both stream it out on all of our live streaming platforms, and those links are listed on that website. Um, and then uh, my main website is dwtruthwarrior.com. I've got it linked there as well. And then Josh, let them know about your sites as well. Yeah, you can find me at redpills.tv. That is the URL, R-E-D-P-I-L-L-S.tv. As well as you can find me on Telegram, t.me slash redpillstv, all one word. And much appreciated, Sean. Thank you so much. Much appreciated, David and Josh. And guys who are watching this, viewers who are watching this, please go over and support what they're doing. The links will be in the description box below the video. There's going to be far more content, far more content in much more detail in the series. And we hope to see you guys soon. So good luck Absolutely. with what you do, fellas. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Sean. Thanks for having us. Thanks, everybody. Brilliant. Thanks, Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. We're going over to uh, Matthew Steeples and Jimmy Savile and the Untouchable, the feedback we've been getting on the Jimmy Savile documentary. And we're going to be bringing it, Andrew Gold back in. And we're going to be bringing Matthew in. And this is the orange theme. Oh, everybody watching, you've got to be wearing orange right now if you're watching well, this. Well, one person isn't. 
<laughs> You're talking about me. I should just yeah. clarify, Sean, when you said I'm going to be bringing in Matthew Steeples and Jimmy Savile, um, that's just well, to be very can bring clear. in Jimmy Savile. He's, uh, he's safely yeah. somewhere else, probably. Yeah. I want to be very clear that's not who I am. And I do not, um, you know, I, I will fix it for you, but that's about as far as it will go. Well, I won't fix it for you, actually. But it was, it was a lovely idea for a TV show, unfortunately, that's spoiled now forever. And then we've got Norman Baker coming up next to talk about the royal family. So for those of you who are not familiar with Matthew, Matthew, could you just tell the viewers a little bit about you and the Steeples Times? Um, I write about uh, all sorts of different things, uh, mostly a person whose name I guess I cannot mention. Uh, her initials are G and M. Um, that's all I shall say about that. And I write about lots of different other matters. But I did participate in your fantastic program the other day. Yes, and we're both going to be participating in CrimeCon. Not all three of us are going to be at CrimeCon. 2022 aren't we coming up next month yeah and if the viewers uh, are gonna any of you want to come and meet us at crime com uh if you go to their website and put in atwood as a discount code you i think you get 10 percent off the ticket price so we look forward to meeting some of you there and uh, matthew so you know what what i really appreciate the article you wrote about the jimmy savile documentary untouchable what kind of feedback have you been getting from it in your circle? Well, um, the most interesting thing about this is that um, people from America have written to me who are much younger, who've never heard of Jimmy And that is quite fascinating. You know, it's reached a new generation in the same way that the Menendez case has now touched a new generation. Um, Netflix and programs like yours take it to a new audience this is a case that you know it was over 10 years ago really because he was dead 10 years ago but a program like that takes it to a new audience and i think that's a very interesting demographic and how the media has changed matthew why, why is it important to to bring this to new demographics because the, the, there are new cases such as the Tim Westwood, the DJ, who is now being accused of doing similar things. Um, you know, it, it, it is still a relevant story that these people got away with what they did. And if we don't shine the light, then they're going to continue to get away with it. Absolutely. What do you think Netflix could have gone in harder with, Matthew? Netflix could have gone harder on the, the necrophilia, I think. It wasn't mentioned, was it? Yeah. Well, for, I think what he did, you know, Edwina Curry allowing him the keys to the mortuary. Um, oh. He's been a little bit excusory of, of her behaviour. I, I, I have met Edwina Curry. I know her daughter. Um, Mrs. Curry is all too convenient to forget her role in this story. And uh, I think it's time that all these kind of people were called out. Everyone talks about Margaret Thatcher. They talk about Prince Charles, talk about the people who actually really allowed her to, to him to do what he did. Is that alleged about Edwina Curry or is that fact? Edwina Curry um, helped him gain access to facilities, yes. Did she play a role in him gaining access to Broadmoor? Yes. 
100%. And, you know, he had access to these facilities then, mental patients and corpses. Are the people corroborating that he did actually engage in this nefarious activity with uh, corpses? Well, I can't, I can't confirm, I don't know. I, I, I wasn't present, so, I, you know, we don't know that. But, but there's plenty of people who've said he did. And there are plenty who said he did other things. Like, for example, um, when I wrote about the person who bought his um, Range Rover and his Rolls Royce, which they plan to use for children's parties, they, they said to me, um, you know, we're going to have to burn these damn things because the, the 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 things that have gone on in the back of the, the, the he used to have double beds in the back of the Range Rover and the Fiesta Ford Fiesta van. He he's a he he really had some very sick things going on in his life. Because we know what. Oh, sorry, Andrew, go on. Well, I was just going to say it's an issue, I guess, with journalists and stuff. We, we know that when somebody is dead, obviously defamation. Uh, isn't a thing so you that thing about the dead people I, I wonder if that's why Netflix didn't go because because we're always saying oh some, we know a lot of people have said it but obviously we can but really on prove your it. program Sean you had Christopher Barry D talking about that he he is a very respected journalist you know he he talked about that okay um, the um, the the journalist I forget his name he was going to be on channel 5 tonight with his big program at 9 o'clock um, he he doesn't believe in that, but uh, I think Jimmy Savile didn't care whether it was living, dead, or otherwise. He really was wow. into anything, hmm. from what I gather. Yes, you're referring to Christopher Berry D, who yes. is the biggest biggest true crime author in the world. Precisely, and he he said on your program about the necrophilia. He was very specific about it. I did I did listen in detail, so you know I will say he. He was specific. I, I think plenty of other people have been. Um, uh, Mark William Thomas uh, says he doesn't know whether that's true or not. But, well, there we so are. What, what was really sad then when we were doing the research for the documentary was the testimonies of nurses, for example, at facilities that Savile was working at. And if a patient would come to them, you know, they, they were told just to hush it up. If a patient complained that Jimmy had done something, they were told to hush it up. And then you've got victims saying that, you know, I did report this to a nurse and the nurse said, well, that's, that's Jimmy. You know, you, you, we, we can't do anything about it. You best not tell anybody. So that's really sad, isn't it? Well, I think the, 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 your, your two victims who came on, the man and the woman, they both said the same thing. You know, they talked about the poor lady who committed suicide, and um, you know, he 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 threatened anybody who got in his way. He he knew how to handle idiot victims as he saw them. He refer, he he referred to these people as stupid. Hmm. Is that not a bit harsh? Well, it, it's very harsh on them, yes. But that's treated these people. He was a bully, but he knew how to manipulate people. Like when he got in the car with Louis Ferrou when he drove to Scotland and he was asked a question. And the question was, Jimmy, people say things about you. And he said, 
They can say whatever they want, but I'll take them all down with me and I'll destroy them all on the way. He knew how to manipulate the system. Do you see that through one, Sean? That's, it's just the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. It's hard to um, get to access the first one now, isn't it? You can watch the apology one. Oh. But I think the first one's been uh, dis disappeared off the internet. I, I've got a video of it somewhere. I'll show you one day. <laughs> I bet you do. Oh, good. Just, yeah, just watch I, I, knew, I knew all about his program about um, Neil and Christine Hamilton, you see, because I knew them quite well. So. Oh, right. That was around the same so time. That was how it? I got interested in Louis Ferrer. It wasn't because of Jimmy Savile. I, I, I was involved with Neil and Christine Hamilton back long, mm. long ago. So, mm. was you know, he, he, he actually was very clever. And in that car journey to Scotland, he quizzed him. And that man said, if you threaten me, I'll take you all down. We didn't say that to Louis. Yes, he did. He said he he answered the question. He answered his question. He said, "Anybody who accuses me of doing anything, I'll take you all down." He said a lot of weird stuff in that. It's a weird little car. In journey. that car journey, you look up the quote. You know, there it is. Yeah. Mm. I've quoted mm. this well, yeah. quote repeatedly over the years. Oh right, I just remember. I remember the bit before because he's he's saying Louis says, "Why is it you say you hate children?" And he he said, well, well, it's you know easier to say you hate them, isn't it? If people people, well, you know. And Louis says, but it's even more suspicious when you start saying you hate children. And he just, sort of, I guess, he then says what you've just quoted, Matthew. So it was, it's a really awkward uh, little scene, that isn't it? The the worst scene in my mind was when he showed up with his fishnet vest. Well, he had many different weird outfits, that's for sure. And they were all sold at auction, and some stupid people bought them. I think most of them ended up on a bonfire, a bit like Rolf Harris's paintings, to be honest. So, Matthew, you've talked about how he had control of politics, royalty, you know, he had connections at the top of every section of the establishment and government and royalty. Would you say that the foundation of his protection, of his insulation from incarceration, was his Friday lunch club with the police? Well, I think that was a central part of it. Um, you know, he, he had his local protection, which was obviously very important because he lived there. And obviously he did things there. And Ray Tanet, his driver, who was died in prison, another paedophile and monster, um, aided him in that um uh but he obviously had other people but he had politicians ranging from edward heath to you know edwina curry to all sorts of people helping him um he conned the royal family he conned a lot of people he he was a very able person when it came come, came to manipulating people um and I suppose we lived in a different age then, you know, before the internet, then Google and, you know, that poor lady that you had on the program, Untouchable, um, you know, where did she have to turn to? Where did her friend have to turn to? Because nobody listened to them because everybody said, this is Jimmy Savile, leave him alone. The BBC you know, but the, the, the culture at the BBC, you know, we still see is not quite fixed because 
this Tim Westwood case, again, shows it in a different age, in the woke era. Um, you know, look what's happened to these poor women that he supposedly attacked, if that is true. Um, so the BBC haven't learned their lesson. Are we, is it? I mean, you're touching it being a different era and all of that. Um, and I think, does that get forgotten sometimes? And not in any sense excusing him, but if anything, criticising the culture of yesteryear. Because the amount of like musicians and stuff who were at it, and I've made the mistake of sort of saying names before, and obviously it's all allegedly, so I won't do that now before Sean gets into a panic. But, you know, some of the biggest, most famous rock stars in the world are known to have been involved with 13, 14 year old girls. One in particular wrote a song about it and blast, blasted it all over the radio. I'm talking about an American singer. I mean, it's, it was a strange time, wasn't it, almost? Well, people, people, people have different standards depending on who they are, but, um, but at the end of the day, abuse is abuse. Yeah. I, so I just I just want to congratulate you both on that documentary, by the way. It's absolutely fantastic. And Sean, you, you end with a, such a powerful moment to camera. What did it mean to you to, to, to make this film? How And how long was it in the making? So it took four years approximately to make it. And a huge credit to James of Underground Films for oh. structuring, it, structuring it so well. I thought, you know, I didn't realise how powerful the structure was till I actually watched it. Yeah. Um, during the premiere, uh, my parents said they were gripped, you know, they watched the whole thing. And we've had so many comments come in from people just saying that, you know, usually I, I tune in for this, tune in for that. But this, you know, I, I, I put all that time aside to watch the whole thing. So it's, it's great. Um, the, the, you know, the survivors should not be forgotten. There was a lot of focus on Savile in all these documentaries. The BBC one's coming out soon as well. And I thought well, it was can I can I interrupt you and say, you know, in any situation, it's always the victim who should be remembered first, rather than the perpetrator. We always talk about the criminal before the before the victim, and the victim is so important. That's why we were honoured to have on exclusively Kelly Gold, yep. who was a, a former Top of the Pops dancer. Yes, and and friend of Claire McAlpine, who should and the be remembered. Well, who was from Liverpool? Yes, Stephen French. So Claire McAlpine kept a diary of what had happened to her, and it wasn't just Savile. There was a world famous singer. There was a famous DJ. Uh, she feared that she was pregnant. She put this in a diary. Her mum found it. And when the when the mum approached the BBC, the BBC denied anything like that had possibly happened, she was a fantasist. So then the mum turned to the Met Police who lost the diary. So that is an absolute abomination that not only was this person, you know, the mum not listened to, but Machiavellian maneuvers were made so that that diary would disappear into the Bermuda Triangle. That That's, yeah, that's a travesty of justice right there. So I think, Netflix and the BBC should ra should help raise these kinds of stories as as well as you know focusing on the general mainstream media story. That that's what was important to me to, to go deeper and to expose things and to try and you know keep keep the memories of people like Claire McAlpine living on. She was only fifteen at the time. 
Did he? Does, are there any rumours or, or talk of, of him passing on any, you know, offspring? Is there anything like that? I don't know about that. What do you? What have you heard anything, Matthew? Um, well, there were allegedly incidents when people became pregnant, but he always denied it. So, is, I mean, so I don't know about the possibility, isn't it? Whether there were ever any DNA tests or anything, probably unlikely. He probably just bullied them into shutting up. Um, yeah. Did you um, ever come across him, Matthew? I never personally met the man, no. No. Sean? I was very lucky on that record. <laughs> Um, when I, when I, I was a kid, when I was a child who wanted to go on Jim will fix it to me, and um, I think uh, I think that this child did go on the program, and they wanted to meet this creature called the Samfire, the, you know, the, the, from the BBC series. I can't remember what it was called. The the thing that dug into the sand, and they did manage to go on it. So, but I don't. I, it was. A, a child that lived in the same village as me, or something. So <laughs> that's the end. That's the close. I never ever. I, I always found him a bit creepy, but I think most people did. As a kid, I was never inclined towards his show either. I was more of a Tizwas. I, I preferred Tizwas than the than the BBC I like, stuff. I like, like listening like... to Just William as I did on Radio Four this morning. You know, <laughs> I prefer I prefer something a bit more innocent, to be honest. These are these are not not only very British references that few people are going to understand, but they're also Stone Age references. But it is oh, we're Stone to speak Age, to... are we? So you're the youngster here. <laughs> I am, of course, I am. I'm a generation younger than you, I, I hope or believe, but than both of you guys. But it's good to be able to talk to you guys about you know the the old the old world and the way it was i should just say i've just done a little research here um jimmy Savile never had children however in 2015 the mirror reported a 29 year old woman claimed she may be savile's daughter after her mother georgina martin previously said i have carried the terrible secret that my child is likely to belong to jimmy savile for three decades well she wouldn't have inherited very much because uh, most of it got taken by uh, the, uh, the litigators and uh, the victims so um and the penthouse got pulled down in Leeds, which uh, it's uh, the Did building it? is still there, but you know his his apartment no loss. What about Savile's connection to the Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe prior to the um, incarceration of Sutcliffe, and then at Broadmoor? Well, it was like an ongoing thing, wasn't it? Well, maybe there was some connection, but maybe not, because as many of your guests said on the program, you know, he was a bit of a lone operator and he did his own thing. He liked to do things in the back of his, you know, Range Rover and his Ford Fiesta van. Um, mm. Whether he would have wanted to have joined in with somebody else who was equally power crazy is another matter, but who knows? It's possible, but... Yeah. After his incarceration, um, Jack, the the, um, the Yorkshire Ripper, um, Savile did introduce him to Frank Bruno. Do you think that Savile was just drawn to killers and sickos? Um, I think Savile liked to have anybody as long as they were just, they had attention around them because he'd like to show off to them to show he was more important than them in his mind, I would think. I would think he would have been on an ego trip to say, I'm bigger than you. 
Mm. It's interesting what Sean's saying because there's that clip, isn't there, with him with Gary Glitter, and they all they almost seem to be winking at each other on TV. Do you know what I mean? And it is an interesting thought, uh, a disgusting one too, of of the two of them and other people like them sitting around and maybe off camera, you know, gloating to one another about you know what they've done. They are they are all very very sick people, but you know, I I don't know that much about them. I know more about. Rolf Harris and Max Clifford and other people of that type. Um, and, you know, they they all have the same attention demand that they want to be, they want to be the big character. So with Clifford being dead then, we you know, and Savile's dead, it, 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 we can't get done for defamation or cyberbullying. So what is, what was Max Clifford's role in that whole era of cover-ups and Max and Clifford. A- Max Clifford was very good at one thing. He would say to a newspaper, "You don't upset my client. I will give you this story instead." So I trade you. You have this, and you shut up about that. And that's how he worked. That's how he worked for people like the man who ran um, Blackpool Football Club, of course, Orange, (laughs) Owen Oyston, he he represented him. He worked, he had on his board of directors, Stuart Hall. You know, these people all were, and the protection of each other was very key to their agenda. How did did Clifford maintain that for so long? And what was, what caused his downfall? Um, he got too he got too arrogant in the end. He just he just couldn't stop himself. He thought he was God. And like, you know, and he flew too close to the sun. If you want to make a comparison of that nature, he, Icarus. Yeah. He, did, you he, see, he, did you see that? Did you see that clip, Andrew, where Max Clifford comes up behind the TV presenter who's outside the, the courthouse, court case, yes, and starts imitating the TV presenter behind the camera? Yeah. Have you yeah, seen yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy, isn't it? It's so weird. Really, really creepy. Well, I, I had I threat- oh, go on. I had threats from Max Clifford's daughter after his death. You know, they, they, the, the Cliffords are a very arrogant family. I exposed the fact that she, she recreated his very own website. She thought she could just carry on as him. There's a, a funny, uh, sort of funny Max Clifford anecdote I've got because I interviewed a guy on my podcast um, called Chris Atkins recently. And Chris is a journalist, documentary maker who exposed um, Max Clifford and was a big part in getting him put in prison. But Chris um, also was done for tax fraud and then he got put in prison for two and a half years. And when he walked in, he saw Max Clifford there and he sort of comes in and Max Clifford says to him, you know, oh God, you've come to rub it in or something like that. And he's like, no, no, I'm living down the hall now. And it's sort of had a little chat and all that. Wow. That's bizarre. <laughs> but, so funny. But Max Clifford, um, when he died, everybody said, how on earth did he have a, a, a luxury bed in prison? He had a bed better than anybody else. He had a, uh, he had a mattress brought in specially. He, he got special privileges to the end because he still mm. was controlling people even then. So he was... He was go on, Sean. So, so um, Matthew, you're being asked about another... A character from the media from that era, 
and that is Jill Dando. What are your thoughts on Jill Dando's death? Um, what, what she well, was investigating? I never, I never knew Jill Dando. Um, I had a a um, situation of my own in my relations. Um, we had a lady who I won't name today, but we'll talk about it another time, who was shot in a similar way in West London at around the same time, and she was killed with a crossbow on her doorstep. Um, I won't talk about that tonight, but but um, Jill Dando did probably know rather a lot about Savile, and she... I, I don't believe her death was linked to Savile, but it's a possibility. Wow, that's a brave, a bold thing to say. Um, but 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 my 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 relative F was very very similar in West London, and I think there's more likely. But we'll talk about that another time. Agree. I, I never even knew. I mean, I was only, again, not to go on about the generation gap, but I was only eight years old when Jill Dando was shot. Uh, was it outside her house, I think? Um, but even, I still remember that because it was just such a big, crazy, unexpected thing. I never knew there might be a pot potential link to, uh, you know, people knowing too much about Savile and that kind of thing. Um, well, it was regularly mentioned, but her, she was, she was also connected with things in Yugoslavia at the time, and um, and there were other matters because she was a crime watch presenter oh, of course mm. very sad and she was a lovely lady and i think it's terrible how she died and you know and, and her her fiance you know he's never been you know he's been exonerated and all of this and you know no, no justice for her death and that's very sad yeah and if, and if people want to watch more about Matthew's thoughts on Rolf Harris. We've got a clip out on the channel. It's got almost 100k views. And the clip starts with actual footage of Rolf and Jimmy. And it's, oh, oh. Disgusting. Disgusting. And when he, but his most recent episode of when he went to visit the school and he started waving at the children is, is equally appalling. You know, the man is, the man has no shame. And I've met Rolf Harris on a number of occasions. And frankly, everyone I know who owns his who owned his paintings of burnt the damn things because frankly who'd want them um i found there's, the there's wife a... i found the wife more worrying actually in many ways she's very very strange and the daughter she changed her tune as she went along in the story bindi nichols um bindi is somebody i have um not much respect for right bloody hell. and all win hughes equally it's interesting because obviously there's two types of these these people who you know uh, molest children, and there's a sort of psychopath, which we, which we would imagine Jimmy Savile is, and then you've got a type who maybe is not a psychopath, perhaps, but maybe they are battling with their demons and they decide to do it anyway. It's still unforgivable, unforgivable, but different kinds. And so Rolf Harris seems, in, at least in, in I have I would have no idea. What do you think? Which kind is he a horrible, horrible acting psychopath, or is he sort of an unforgivable person who let himself, you know, do what he wanted to do, kind of thing? Um, Rolf Harris is just an arrogant man who thought he could do anything he wanted. Um, he did whatever he wanted in, in Australia, and uh, they got sick of him, so he came, he came, he came here, and mm. then he got caught, and he still thinks he can get away with it. You know, in prison, he. He wrote poems about these women and called them the woodworm women. 
Um, and that's disgusting. And then when he got out, he went cr he went crawling around the outskirts of um, children's playgrounds. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any remorse for his activity. Um, you know, there he is living in um, Maidenhead and thinks he can carry on, but nobody wants to know him. But he continues to make a fortune from his royalties, just like Gary Glitter. They all continue to make money from their, their, their past lives. And, well, nobody can stop that because that's part of their existence. But um, it's just appalling to think of it. Before we bring Norman Baker in then, I am going to just do a quick survey of the viewers. Please put a one in the chat on whatever platform you are on. We've got them all collated here. If you have watched our Savile documentary, Untouchable. Put a two in the chat if you have not yet watched it. And put a three in the chat if it is on your to-do list. Just want to see what um, how it's going there with the... Looks like a lot of people have watched it so far. While those are coming in, Matthew, do you want to tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and read the Steeples Times? Um, well, they're very welcome to read the Steeple Times, the steeplestimes.com. Um, and they can follow me on Twitter, the, again, Steeple Times. So um, that's the best place for it. And, and people can come and meet all three of us at CrimeCon 2022. Do you know the dates of that off the top of your head, Matthew? Um, well, I'll be there on the 12th of June, I believe, with you. Probably, Me whatever, too. Whatever, two or three days, I think, aren't we? No, Saturday I think it's only Sunday, two days. Saturday and Sunday. 11th yeah, and 12th. So Saturday and Sunday, and then it's 11th and 12th of June, but the our little event is on 11 o'clock on the 12th of June. And if you do Matthew, come to CrimeCon, uh, go to the CrimeCon website and... If you put in Atwood, A-T-T Wood, you will get a discount on the ticket price. Um, the people are asking, where is the Savile Dock? Presently, the Savile Dock is on YouTube. And also a version has just gone up on Rumble, a four-minute, 21-hour, uh, 21-minute version that's got some David I content at the end of it. <laughs> I'll just leave that at that. Yeah. Are you, All right. Are you... Are you looking forward to meeting me at the thingy, at the CrimeCon, Matthew? Oh, well, most definitely, yes. I hope you'll be wearing something orange because uh, we both made the effort. <laughs> we all made the effort, mate. We've all made the effort. <laughs> you need a bit more. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna... an orange thing at the bottom of the screen, though, so at least you've done that. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to we're gonna shave Andrew's back, Matthew, and then we're going to put a body-hugging lycra orange luminescent top on him for the duration uh, of crime con gosh it sounds it sounds very criminal <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you for the super chat hang tight it is appreciated whoops scrolling that there where are we really appreciate there this the uh super chat from hang tight and we are about to bring in norman baker and we're gonna I'll be seeing Matthew later this week. So cheers, my friend. Thank you for coming okay, on. Okay, I'll thanks. see you on Friday. <laughs> cheers, Matthew. Bye-bye. very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> so I'm really happy and honoured to have JC on the channel. I've been watching his YouTube channel for years. The link is going to be in the description box. It's been some dark places going up through the gangs. 
the, got in the mix of the cartel, ended up in prison in Mexico. And we're going to go over his story now. Please support him and his work and go over and subscribe to his channel. He's constantly putting stuff up and it's really inspiring a lot of people all over the world. So did you say then that you grew up in Chicago? Yeah, I was, uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I was born, born and raised in Chicago. I just, um, I spent a lot of time in Mexico because my family was very, very, uh, you know, close to our roots. So every summer I got sent to Mexico. So what is it in Chicago? Was it, is it the gangster disciples? What, who were the gangs out there back then? I mean, it, uh, the Land Kings is one of the biggest, you know, Latino gangs out there. And uh, I was, I, I started off as a Satan disciple, and then I turned to Latin King. <clears throat> okay, so how did you get recruited? Was it getting jumped in? Yeah, I mean, I I was one of the uh, founders of one of the big streets over there, and um, I, I really didn't have to get jumped in like that because I we had already made a name for ourselves and stuff like that. So it, it was it was a little bit different for us. And then putting in work is the biggest source of income for the gang. Is that the drugs business? Yeah, the drug business and, and you know, robbing people and everything that had to do with crime. I mean, even even stealing cars and, and taking off the VIN numbers back then was, was really big business back then. Who were your rivals back then? And did they take action against you? I mean, everybody fights everybody in Chicago. It, it is a, a all-out <laughs> war. Every, every day, you're, you're trying to stay alive, pretty much. Did you lose people? Oh, a lot, a lot, a lot of a lot of friends. A lot of a lot of friends are are, are gone, and a lot of friends are, are doing life sentences, uh, not never coming home. Um, who was the first friend that you lost? Um, I was uh, I was in sixth grade. His name was Phil. Um, it, it was my, my first stages of, of, you know, getting into the whole gang scene and, and everything. And, uh, we were at a park and a rival gang member showed up on a bike, started shooting and, uh, Phil got hit in the neck <clears throat> and he just, he just died right there in front of me. That was, that was the first, first like gang death that I, I experienced as, as oh. you know, as I started growing up. Holy shit, man. How old were you then? I want to say like ten years old. And what what did that make you think about the lifestyle? Did it, um, you, you know, did it make you think shit? This is this could happen to me, kind of thing. No, um, I was already damaged. Um, I don't I don't know if you know a little bit more about my story, but uh, I have been uh, severely molested and tortured as a kid. So um, my heart was already stoned by then. Um, that same night, I started looking for for those guys to to take care of business. Um, I was a very broken kid, so a lot of, a lot of older gang members took advantage of that. You know, I wasn't afraid to uh, put in the work. Was it a family member or a stranger that that did that heinous stuff to you? Uh, my my mom's my brother. Holy shit, man! That's fucking horrendous. All right, so you've got trauma from that then, and you're on the streets. And, you know, when things happen to young people like that, they don't have the tools to process it and deal with it. So now your, your community has become the gang, and they can see the potential in you, and that's how, that's how you rise up on the streets, is it? Yeah, you know, um, 
I made I made a name for myself pretty quick. Started moving up the ladder pretty quick, just because you know I, I wasn't afraid to go to prison or, or to die. So uh, uh, my flight and fight mode was was on since <laughs> I don't know for a while. Who, who who was the next friend you lost after the first one you just described? Uh, next year I, I lost a friend uh, right in front of Tanti uh, School on 59th Street. Uh, it was just a shooting. Uh, they were supposed to kill somebody else, but uh, the bullet hit one of my friends. And then does it just go back and forth? Then your crew try and hunt those guys down. Yeah, you know, um, people don't realize the amount of uh, damage that it does to a kid's like brain. The process, you know, of watching your your head, your friend's head get like blown off, or or just watching people get ran over, killed. Um, you you start to grow up very very uh i guess numb and then it becomes easy for you to do it believe it or not <clears throat> and what was your first run in with the law uh first one was uh shoplifting and did they just give you did they just tell you off on on that kind of a charge and let you go or what what happens I got caught stealing a bunch of GI, GI Joes and uh, mm -hmm. they called my dad and uh, I think I would have rather went to prison than, than <laughs> I couldn't oh, sit shit. down for like two weeks. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> what, 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 what was your first arrest that led to incarceration or stay in the jail? Um, I had a lot of overnights all the way from 14 to about 17, uh, a lot of overnights. Um, and then my, my first my first incarcerations were all shootings, um, a lot for use of a weapon, uh, fell in possession of a weapon. Uh, I think I have four or five gun cases with unlawful use of a weapon. So what county jails were you in? Was it the same one? I was uh, I was in prison in, in county county jail in downtown uh, in Chicago. I was in Dixon. I was in East Moline. I was in Joliet. I was <laughs> uh, in Mexico. I was in Texas. I was in California. I was in Florida, Atlanta, Oklahoma. I've been around the block, man. What was the county jail like in Chicago? Because I experienced the county jail in Phoenix, Arizona. My co-defendant, Wildman, he experienced LA County. It's, it's quite hardcore, these places. I imagine Chicago's I hard hardcore as well. I was here in Phoenix too. Um, oh yeah, what year? I did the tents here too. I did. I did yeah. prison too. Wow, what what year yeah. were you in the tents? Uh two thousand fourteen. Okay, yeah, we were in the we're in the Maricopa County in two thousand and two. And I went, I went in in two thousand and three also, and. I went in there a couple of times. I had a couple of uh, DUIs. Um, I ran from the cops on my motorcycle. Uh, it was, uh, but um, you know, Maricopa is not that bad, to believe it okay. or not. Like it's actually pretty decent. In the tents, <laughs> compared, compared to Mexico, is that? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, yeah, one time I was in prison in Mexico. Uh, 
all the prisons here in the United States were like five-star hotels, to tell you the truth. <laughs> we're going to get to that in a minute. But because you've been in prison and jail across America then, how did you find that the rules of racial separation were different across the states? Or were they, 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 were they similar in some ways? Or like in, in AZ, it's the whites, blacks, Chicanos, Pisces are the four main groups and everyone's got to keep separate. Is it like that in Chicago? Is it different? How does it work? It's a little bit different in Chicago just because of the structure of the gangs. Uh, there's gangs that have uh, blacks, whites, Mexicans. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they don't they don't care about race. Uh, federal prison, you'll you'll experience it because you'll go in and you'll see gangs from everywhere, and you'll get to see gangs that are mostly black. You know, but Chicago is very very different. It's it's more of a mixture. It's more so, about so, folk people, that's it. So in Chicago, you could like sit at a table in the day room with the other races? Yeah. Yeah, as long as they're from your same crew. As long as they're from your same crew, right. Okay. That's what happened to me when I when I got to Maricopa, I didn't know that. And I was fresh here. So when I got there, I went to go sit with the black guys because I knew a couple of the guys from, from the streets. And the Chicanos, the AZ guys, almost had a heart attack. They're like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just, I'm just sitting with my friends. <laughs> and they're like, no, nah, you can't do that, man. You can't do that here. You know? Yeah, I was, I was working out with a Chicano uh, called Sniper, and the Woods were like, we want a word with you, Wood. And, I, and I, go, I, go, I go in the cell, and they're like, look around the day room, Wood. Do you see any of the white boys working out with the other races? <laughs> I'm like, nope. <laughs> Same shit, yeah, man. Same shit. It's crazy, man. You know, uh, when I got there, they told me, who are you sitting with, the, the Chicanos or the Mexicans? And I was like, aren't we the same thing? Because I was a little, like, taken back. And, and they were like, no, you got to pick one side. And uh, honestly, man, I sat with the Mexicans a lot because I just, I just, you know, I interacted a lot with them. I found myself with them. So it's just it's my, my people, you know. Yeah, the Chicanos and the Mexicans were at war in Arizona DLC around the time I was there. I don't know what it's, the state is now, but yeah. But all right, let's because because um, we've got limited time this time. But I'd love to get you back on because you obviously got so many stories. So how did you end up then putting in work for the cartel and ending up in prison in Mexico? I, I started working for uh, Valerie. She's one of the Flores twin brothers' uh, uh, wives. Uh, I started working for her at a very young age and, um, you know, she taught me the ropes and pretty much got me my interview and my job in Mexico. And, and I just started working from there. I met the family, got in with, good with them and, and I just started working for them. I was, I was a good employee. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what did you get busted doing that landed you the prison in Mexico? Oh, I was, uh, I was trying to get drugs from Mexico to the United States. So I was transporting, uh, vehicles, from uh, Michoacan, Apatzingán, Michoacan, into Chicago. And how did you get caught? Uh, I got sloppy. Uh, I started, my head started getting big. I was making a lot of money and, and I, I started uh, crossing over on times that I shouldn't have been crossing over at and, and you know, getting high. And I just wasn't taking my job as, as serious as I did at, at one point. So which police agency caught you? 
It was the uh, the Federales and, and the Army was there. They had a, a big, uh, what they call it, a reten. Um, it's a checkpoint that really never goes away. Uh, so it's it's always there. We knew it was there, you know. Did you try to bribe your way out of it? Yeah. And it didn't go down very well. No, they uh, they they needed to make an example. Um, I shouldn't have been crossing over at that time. It, it, every every hour, every crossover is is for you know a purpose, a family. They pay for it, so they take it very serious when people are not following the the, the ropes. And did they confiscate a quantity of drugs? Yes. So were you then responsible for that debt? Uh no. Okay, so they just put it down as a cost of doing business. Yeah. They took care of me while I was there. You know, they, they made sure in Mexico if you don't have money, you, you you're not doing you're not doing good time. <laughs> you're yeah. not doing time at all. <laughs> what happened next then after you got busted? You're like, oh shit, and then this shouldn't be happening, but it did happen. You know, it really didn't hit me until I got there, and, and then I got stabbed. <laughs> so. Stabbed? All right, take, take us through that more slowly. What, 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 you know, you're, you're entering a facility. There's other inmates. There's guards. What, what's it all look like? Well, you know, I get there, and I'm, I'm I look like an American. I'm dressed like an American. I have Jordans on. I have a Jordan outfit on. Uh, you know, I have sunglasses. So I, I look like an American, so... As soon as they they open the big doors and they just they throw me in, they're like, go you know go find go find a cell. And I was like, what do you mean go find a cell? And <laughs> as soon as I stepped away a little bit from from that gate, I got approached by a bunch of guys. This is the first time I had seen guys with like tattoos on their faces and just looking crazy, you know. And they surrounded me and and um, he was like, give me your shoes. And I was, I was thinking I was still tough, you know, so I was like, take my shoes. And, uh, yeah, they, they took them. Um, I got hit in the back with a, with a knife. It was so thin that it, it closed up right away. It was like an ice pick. And my lungs started to fill up with blood right away, so I couldn't even breathe. And I just fell to the floor pretty much. Um, I didn't even see that coming. Didn't see it coming. No, I, honestly, I thought somebody had just punched me and I lost my, my wind. That's what I thought it was at the, at the beginning. But it, it started getting to the point where I couldn't even breathe because my stomach was hurting so bad. So uh, I knew I knew what time it was. I, I, you know, I kind of just went to the floor. How did you regroup from that? I just I woke up in the infirmary. Uh, I woke up in the hospital and um uh, the doctor came in, they started checking me and he, the doctor had to stab me again <laughs> because he had to put that tube in my, in my lung, like emergency. I was coming in and out. <clears throat> so I got stabbed twice. I got stabbed by the inmates and then I got stabbed by, by the doctor. How long were you in the infirmary for? I said about a two, two, three weeks, not long. They kicked me out right away. To the same joint? Yeah, <laughs> but I already, I already had um, I already had people that had came in to see me while I was in, in the in the hospital in the, in the infirmary, and uh, I already knew where I was going to go live and, and 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 everything. I I was set. 
Right, so because it was you, you were arrested unexpectedly, everything happened so suddenly, you got attacked, but once everything was set, it was set for the rest of the stay? Yeah, yeah. I just, I got myself into a lot of trouble because I, I was constantly using drugs, getting into fights, uh, uh, beating up people that I shouldn't beat up. You know, there's there's powerful people in there that no matter what, you just can't touch them. And uh, I've always been very, very hard-headed, man. And I've always, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've always just gotten into trouble, man. So, you've, you know, you've described earlier, like, your different experiences in America, you know, what tables you can sit at, how it is with the gangs and the races. As a, you know, coming in from the States, how did you fit in? And what, what is the structure out there? Is there a clique of people from America who, who look out for each other or...? Is there, is, there a uh, there is there a Chicano click? No, there is a couple mm. of Americans there, but they got off the yard really quick. Um, it was constantly having to prove ourselves, man. They, they, you know, even though I'm, I'm Mexican, like my parents, it's very different world over there. They're a lot more violent. They're a little bit more just, I don't know, man. It was constantly fights every day. Uh, uh, you had to constantly prove prove yourself. And I was lucky that I was there with another American. I always talk about him. His name was Ricardo. Um, and he knew how to box. So he always had my back. <laughs> so, you know, he, he would beat him up and I would stab him. Because that's, that's just how we, we were a team. <laughs> so, so like, <laughs> like in jail, you see guys squash beefs one-on-one. It's not like that. They're coming in in packs. In packs, man, in packs, and you have to be very, very careful who you piss off, and and it's it's just another world, man. It's another another world with very, very few rules. And if they're coming in in packs, is that because they're trying to liquidate whatever shit you've got in your cell? They're they're just trying to get you out of the out of the yard. I seen some of the biggest beatings over there, and and the most. I guess you could say awful things done to people, you know, in the Mexican prisons, man. Like what? I mean, there was there was a guy that went in there that had raped a, a, a two-year-old little baby, and they were already waiting for him at the door. Mm. Uh, they let him in, and it was like hyenas on top of him. By the time he got to the middle part of the prison, like the center of the prison, he already had a broom all the way up his uh, uh, his butt, all the way up. His hands were completely, like, broken. He couldn't even put his hands down because they looked like jello. So it was like a scene out of a cartoon. Like, it, it didn't even look real. And they just kept beating him and beating him to, like, he just didn't move no more. And it was it was constantly seeing, seeing stuff like that over there. You know, there was a lot of drug abuse. There was a lot of violence. Um, a, a lot of the bad stuff happened to the people that wouldn't pay their debts. You know, that there was there was a lot of, you know, debt because a lot of drugs, a lot of drug use. What drugs are people using in prison in Mexico? Oh, uh, they they had everything in there. There was people that would come in from visit, come in to visit to buy drugs because they were more powerful in there than they were on the streets. <laughs> Yeah. And is it is it the case like you, the women could come in and spend time with you, things like that? It, it was 
it was visiting day over there. The, 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 it was like a very different day. There was Thursdays and Sundays were very different days because all the women came in, all the kids came in, and, and there was a lot of respect on those days. Nothing bad happened. Nobody got beat up. Uh, just, you know, everybody was spending time with their families, and it was a very sacred, sacred time. And, and you know, you got to have, you know, your women and, and your family. Was it that incarceration that made you rethink your occupation? Nah, I, I was I was in my prime, man. I, I was ready to get out and, and start working again. And I had made bigger connections. And, and you know, that's why when I, as soon as I got out, I flew straight into uh, another prison in Mexico because I, I went to go talk to some people. It's just, I went in with a GD and came out with a PhD pretty much. Holy shit. We need to get you out into London so we can film you properly for multiple hours and, and, and do some great content with you because we're almost out of time here. But are you are you allowed to travel? I haven't tried. <laughs> they try to they try <laughs> to get me to go to London for a TV show uh, called uh, America's Most uh, Evil. And uh, finally, they just said, we'll just go to Arizona and film you over there. So that's that's what they did. Because they tried and, and it was the, the, the legal stuff was too much. They couldn't overcome it. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. But, but, but I'd definitely do, love to do some more with you. What What was out of all your entire life stories then, what was the one when you thought you were going to get, you know, lose your life? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> <laughs> all of them. <laughs> I have so many. It's, it's, it's you know, you know, when, when I went in this, when I went in this last time for a violation, um, they sent me to one of the most dangerous prisons in, in the U.S., Victorville. It's a USP. And as soon as I got there, they had already stabbed some dude to death over a piece of chicken. And I was there to do three months. You know, like, I, I, I really didn't think I was going to make it out. You know, so it, 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 there's been very, there's been big episodes in my life where I was like, I can't do this no more. I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired, and I, I I was broken, bro. I was I was I was in a million pieces. How long have you had your channel, and what inspired you to do it? Um, I've had my channel for seven years now. Um, even the year that I went back, uh, it was still up. But uh, mm -hmm. I just I wanna I wanna shed some light on 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 guys like me because a lot of the trauma that comes from a child from a child that's being molested and being you know, tortured and all that stuff, it, it, it takes an effect later on in your life. And that's why a lot of kids are going to prison now. A lot of kids are, are doing stuff that they wouldn't really do. They don't have the heart to do it, man. Nobody, nobody's born to, to take somebody's life or, or, or just to do stuff like that. It's, it's, I don't believe everybody, I don't believe nobody's bad. Yeah, the mission statement on our channel has been to end this stupid war on drugs and take all that money and go after the predators. Because we've learned through hundreds of interviews that the root cause of crime primarily is childhood trauma and primarily these fucking predators. And the, the government, they make one excuse after the other and they, these guys get slaps on the wrists, yet they mass incarcerate young people for drugs. It's all upside down. So we're on the same page there, brother. I wish you all the best with your channel. Please, if you're viewing this, go over and, and check JC's channel out. And subscribe, and you, you, you know I've been like I said in the beginning, I've been watching this stuff for years, and there's 
hours and hours of endless content and like he said himself he's got so many stories but yeah all all the best my friend wish wish you a great rest of your day thank you man appreciate it thank you for your time take care oh hey jason how you doing good how are you i am well thank you oh what's the dog uh, my my shiba you know like oh. dogecoin oh those ones i know those oh yeah, they're lots lovely. of fun I'm a- I'm a big dog uh, person. Me too. So tell me, um, me too. where are you talking? To, where are you talking to us from today? Uh, the United States. Whereabouts? An undisclosed bunker location. Hmm. Well, fair enough. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you Can't know, occult is, occult is hidden, and I too am very occult. Okay. Okay. Occult is hidden. You are correct. Um, <laughs> and I will not disclose your whereabouts. California, North Carolina, New York. Yes. You wanna... Yes, exactly. All of those places. So tell me a little bit about your background and what you're on to talk about. Yes. I'm an author and a journalist, and I have been writing about <clears throat> spirituality religion and magic and also technology for 25 years now my whole my whole deal is kind of the intersection of of magic and uh, you know the most ancient belief systems of humanity and the most futuristic ones um because i i feel that i feel that what the world needs most now is its heritage of wisdom and the wisdom traditions from around the world no matter what culture because our technology is so incredible now that we need to combine it with the wisdom not to use it to kill ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So we've built atomic bombs and nanoweapons and AI and all of these things. Uh, we need a, I don't need to say to anyone, all you have to do is look out the window to see that we don't have a very good ethical framework for using them or an organizing society for that matter. Hmm. But the good news is that we have all of those systems they come to us from things like Taoism or buddhism tibetan buddhism even the western esoteric tradition which is a long very story tradition that some people refer to as magic and the occult but is much broader than those terms um Hmm. these wisdom traditions are like arcs that have come down to us throughout the centuries with the wisdom of how to how to do life correctly in in my opinion and i think that's what we need now more than anything else I have a podcast. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Tell me what the podcast is called. What is it? The the podcast is Ultra Culture with Jason Lube. And you can find that and the the rest of my books and my magic classes and things like that at jasonlube.com. L-O-U-V. L-O-U-V, Jason Lube. Ultra Culture. Look it up, people. So these, what what sort of thing? Because obviously Buddhism, um, you know, that's nice. Meditation, people are doing mindfulness. I know that's not exactly Buddhism, of course, uh, these days, but people are getting into that sort of uh, the good sides of Buddhism. They're thinking about it. There were loads of murders in the name of Buddhism. There have been wars in the name of Buddhism. That's the other side sure. of it, as there have been with any culture. Uh, how, how do we, what, what kind of stuff do you want to take from some of the traditional cultures? Well, that's the question, right? I mean, what do we take and what do we leave? And the, yeah, sure. I mean, we've got the Rohingya, we've got all kinds of stuff. There's no, no religion is, is perfect. The reason why I use the word magic as opposed to some type of religious thing, I'm not really interested in religion at all. 
What I am interested in is exactly what you said, is what can we take from it? And by take, I don't mean belief systems. I'm I'm 0% interested in belief systems and ideologies or claims of supernatural anything. What I'm interested in are the techniques. So for instance, the techniques of meditation, the techniques of, of um, going into trance states, the techniques of structuring a life, the techniques of, uh, I mean, take your pick. There's a million and one things that we inherit from all of these traditions. And I'm a, I'm a tech guy. You know, I approach this as kind of like a, I approach this partly as a journalist and partly as like an IT guy. I'm just interested in the stuff that works. And the stuff mm. that works tends to work to get you really, really, really high for free, sustainably <laughs> forever. And, and I'm up, up for that as well. For instance, mm. yoga, pranayama, meditation. And it tends to have the secondary knock-on effect of inculcating a deep structure of ethics. And uh, I would say regard for the sacredness of life that just seems mm. to come along with the techniques without necessarily some imposed dogma or religion. So I, I kind of see my role as freeing the technology and shipping the technology. That's interesting. So would you would you call this, I mean, you call it magic and with a K as well. Um, would some people call this a form of spirituality? Sure. Um, I, I do use the word magic with a K. I, I've struggled for many years with this. It is obviously that's the, the um, convention that Aleister Crowley used and I, I take it out of kind of respect for the for the magical tradition itself. I also like the word magic because it's so absurd. Uh, I could easily say blah, 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 cultural studies, anthropology, spirituality, neurolinguistic programming, mindfulness, whatever. But that sounds boring as hell to me. I want magic, you know, otherwise I wouldn't yeah. be, you know, like, and, and I find that it's actually the best word for it because it when you engage with these techniques, your reality can shift so profoundly and shockingly in a positive way <clears throat> overnight that it's as if you li literally are, are doing that. Mag magic is at your fingertips because you have the ability not to change necessarily the world, but to radically change your own perception. These, these are techniques for changing your own, the way that you perceive the world, your own state of consciousness. And since we really don't experience anything other than our own state of consciousness, anything we do to change it, particularly with something as radical as, as magic, uh, can change the, every will change the whole universe for you. So because that, that is your universe. So in terms of is it a form of spirituality? Yes, but I do like the phrase practical spirituality, because spirituality implies kind of, oh, I'm going to get like the mala beads at Whole Foods. And, and <laughs> you know, I'm going to be a nice person. And, you know, this is kind of like aesthetics. Uh, but I'm interested in practical techniques. And so I actually, you know, I actually don't even like the word spirituality because can I, can I, can I curse on your show? Uh, I think so. Yeah. As long as you don't say like um, the, the Jeffrey E or whatever, that, it's, it's a short oh. show and he gets, you know, you can't say his. Right. Yeah. That, that, well, that's the real, that's the real obscenity, right? You know, there's people in power. So yeah, yeah no, what, I guess what I was going to say is I, I don't like, the word spirituality because it's like what what am i trying to become effing casper the, the friendly ghost you know what i mean i'm interested cool. in being more human i'm interested in activating the totality of human potential and just being all the way what i am and which is what everyone can you know what everyone i think should seek to do become all the way alive and so i like the word humanity as well but you know that's mm. not quite you know people understand what you say if you 
you mean spirituality, but I want to be, I'm, I'm, I'm a humanist. I want to be more human, more, more awake, more alive, more compassionate, caring, engaged, effective, you know, you name it. And yeah, obviously we're all stumbling along that path, but I think it's a path worth taking. I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. And I think it's, it is a difficult, uh, concept or notion to name uh which is, i understand why you've gone with magic and you want to stay clear of spirituality and uh it's because it's not quite right and it's really difficult do, do you think this way of living is for everyone i often think for example uh, about how difficult it is just having i don't know a relationship with uh whether it be a girlfriend or a mother but then what about 70 million people in a country or 350 million or whatever it might be we're so different and we all have different ways we want to be and stuff and i guess some I feel like for me, I can't handle any of that stuff. And like, you know, my cousin loves mindfulness, for example, and he like swears by it. I've tried it, but my head just needs to be, I feel it needs to be doing like blah, 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 blah. And I'm sort of quite happy with that. Whereas some people, so is it a different approach for different people? Or do you think I, I could be getting into this stuff? I think so. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I teach my, you know, my main role my main gig is i teach this stuff my my site is magic.me m-a-g-i-c-k.me where I, I teach this and there's a huge array of techniques that are taught there we're talking we're talking like you said mindfulness but raja yoga meditation um tarot I Ching, astral projection we get into all kinds of great stuff um uh, there's but there's bhakti yoga hermeticism nlp buddhism like there's a, a billion and one techniques and the reason that there are a billion and one techniques is because there's a billion and one type of people uh -huh. so i am in the business of teaching all these things so i need to learn all of them but most people find one or two things that really work for them for a lot of people just pursuing their own path in their own career becomes a, becomes an all-consuming thing. We all, but we all want that, right? We want to find the thing that becomes our defining passion. Nobody wants to live a life where they're just kind of in a working in a job that they don't like and and you know stuck in kind of a grindy day job. Everyone wants to live a life of passion and a life that is the life that they truly feel that they are meant to live. The techniques of magic are the techniques of putting you in that slipstream of allowing you to get into that conversation with who you really are and then have the kind of power, you know, if I will, to, to manifest that life. That's what we're talking about. The techniques themselves are just tools. The point of the tool is to, to get you into the life that you know you're meant to live. This is what the tradition calls the true will. I like to say, unleash your true self. That's okay. the goal here. And that's different for everyone. And, and everyone has their own vehicle uh, for expressing who they who they really are. So, is but it, yeah, it's different it, for everyone. Is that in a sense, is that is it life coaching? Is it a similar sort of thing? It is and it isn't. I think that life coaching, self-help, things like this are great. Uh, if you have, if you're working with good people, I like some of that stuff. Um, I think Tony Robbins is great, things like that. But the thing about life coaching and self-help is it's a one-size-fits-all approach and it is a kind of a new religion in the same way that spirituality in you know in the western world is kind of like this weird new amalgam of christianity and and you know candles and incense i don't know what it is deepak but magic is not a one-size-fits-all approach and it is a it and more more specifically even just if you take the Western magical tradition, we're talking about a, a an actual spiritual tradition that goes back to at least the Renaissance and really back to the BC. And it is a 
you know, it's a, it's a way of life. It's not just life coaching. It's a real tradition that, by the way, all of these things like, you know, the spiritual marketplace, mind, body, spirit, self-help, all of the techniques that they're teaching people are little bits of cloth taken from the robe of the magician. They're, they've taken techniques that were part of, you know, a very exacting and demanding path and kind of watered them down and given them to the public. Uh, but but magic is something deeper, older, and more profound, I think is the best way that I can put it. On your Twitter uh, profile, you, you describe yourself as an anti-guru. I mean, you mentioned Deepak Chopra and um, Tony Robbins. Um, are you concerned? I know you like you said you, you, you know spoke positively of, of Tony Robbins, but are you concerned about these kinds of people sometimes? Um, not really. I, I think that what what I am is I'm very mindful that um, of transference and, and transference is something that happens in, in therapeutic relationships as well as relationships like that, where people project an unrealistic image onto somebody. Um, I think that what, what I would hope is my role is to give people techniques and they will use the techniques to draw their own conclusions. I don't want to tell anyone what to think. I don't want to tell people how to live their lives. It's none of my business. I'm just kind of a, a helpful it guy here to deliver some technology. If you would like to use it. Um, with a little bit of tech support. Mm. So I've just gone off, gone off screen. In, in terms of big gurus like that, no, I, I, I like Deepak. You know, it's like, you know, it's like it, it, that stuff is very, very helpful for some people. So I'm not, I don't have like a, a hipster ego about it or anything like that. Hmm. And and so let's say somebody's feeling a little bit lost. They're feeling a bit maybe anxious with today's world and today's ethics, ethical framework. <laughs> they come and say hello to you. And what what happens next? So the first thing, I mean, by the way, like who, who would if if you're not anxious about the world right now, I mean, you're just not not paying attention. So it's like yeah. it's it's pretty. I, I'm not. Bad. I'm not that worried. You know, I know every, okay. everyone else is. Everyone is. I'm just sort of just. I'm much more worried about existential stuff like my own mortality and and that of people around me and that kind of thing but all the other stuff just feels like oh well you know even since the 1950s everyone was like oh we're going to have a nuclear bomb tomorrow you know it's always been that way and i just think oh, i don't really care i'll just get on, get on with it maybe that's a selfish way of thinking but yeah. i'm more stressed about getting old uh aging that kind of thing maybe more selfish views sure well everyone's stressed about that too you know it's like like life is uh uh, life's, mm. life's quite a roller coaster, right? Sometimes. Yeah. So in terms of magic, the, the first thing that, you know, people come to the class, we have an introductory course that we just really, really polished up and perfected in called introduction to magic. We're relaunching it in a few days. Um, mm. but there's tons of classes you can take adapt initiative, things like this. And the place that I tend to start working with students is always, always, always the same meditation 30 minutes a day if you can get control of your mind and and you don't by the way you don't need to go straight into that i mean we can start with yeah, five minutes well, but work your way up eventually you want to yeah. be an hour a day then you're a real meditator because oh. it doesn't really one of the reasons why people drop meditation so quickly is because they don't understand you need to be you need to be in the groove for about 50 minutes before it really kicks in oh. and that's why people but by the way, I did I did I mention getting really 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 high for free forever? It is worth it. Yeah, that sounds and, good. Right? Yeah, no hangover. Yeah. <laughs> it actually. Well, I started. The... <laughs> Sorry, I've started drinking non-alcoholic beer now because I heard somebody talking about um, you know it takes twenty minutes for the alcohol to get into your system, 
Um, so that first hit you get when you're like on a summer's day, the first day of summer or whatever, and you have like a beer outside, nice cold beer, it's actually nostalgia kicking in from like previous times when you've got. Oh, drunk. really? So I've wow, that's a pretty because I, I do that. That's a pretty strong nostalgia, particularly in the summer. So. Oh yeah, I'm like downing the non-alcoholic beers now. I'm just like sat there in the <laughs> and then I forget and I sort of it's walk like around magic. like it is like magic. I'll come home and sort of try and put my keys in the door and I'm like, where's the door? And then only then I'll remember like, oh yeah, I didn't have any alcohol today. I'm fine. What's wrong with me? So that's that's hilarious. One. Yeah, it's yeah. like people get so hung up about placebo effect. I'm like, wait, how, placebo? You can just get you can just get high just by thinking it. How do I do that? You know, like give me some of those placebos, but yeah. um. But yoga is absolutely not meditation. I mean, we've got thousands of studies of, of it's actually it's long-term effects improving the structure of the brain. They've done MRIs, everything. It's it's very, very, very real and very well scientifically studied. But the reason why people drop it and get frustrated with it is usually because A, they're like doing an app or a guided meditation and they don't have the, a real technique. Right. And or B, they just don't persist long enough. And that means usually time on the mat. It means uh, duration. It means doing it every day, but it also means time on the mat. Meditation and magic are just like going to the gym. I don't see it in religious, spiritual, or ideological terms. I look at it as the gym for your mind or maybe martial arts for your mind. And it's the same. It's something you do every day to improve the quality of your focus, your attention, and your thinking. And if you can get control of your mind that way, if you can you know, hyper laser focus your attention, there's literally nothing you can't do. So I always start with meditation, but I also, uh, and that's just across the board. It never changes. That's the, you know, if, if, if I was just recommend one thing for everyone in the world to do, it would be that sit for 30 minutes a day and focus on, focus on a single point and don't think. And <laughs> well, tried it. I'm, I'm one of the guys like you're saying, you know, it's, it's just what you're saying. I got, and, and I know, look, I know how the, sometimes, you know, the brain's amazing. My own thing with this, and I became an evangelist with this was languages. So I started learning hmm. languages. So now I speak five of them and I know wow. I got obsessed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I love showing well, off. I'm big, I show no, no, off it's great. Show. I'm super curious about this because because I've heard that it completely changes your your way of thinking to have all oh, these yeah. different categories. So tell me more about that. I'm super curious. Oh well, I guess you're right. It made me a lot more. Um, I think open minded and patient. What five languages Paul is asking? Well, the thing is, I include English, so it's a bit of a cheat. But but Portuguese, French, Spanish, German, uh, and so yeah, it does make you more sort of I think open to different cultures and people, and you know, uh, more. more more likely to listen to people who are who are strange and different um and different like left wing right wing whatever you start to go like hey maybe that's why i feel a bit like none of it matters you know oh something's happened in the news today in england i'm like well i don't you know i don't care about that i it's small compared to the bigger picture and then there's also that thing of like taking on a new personality i think so maybe there's some crossovers in terms of what you're saying that's what language hundred yeah, percent. That's great. Yeah, I know Europeans always make fun of Americans because we don't know any languages. <laughs> but uh, well, rightly so. Oh, okay. It's, we it's don't like tend that. to. Do... Yeah, like that a, was a, part a, of the allure for me. That was part of. I mean, someone here's written English is supposed to be the hardest language to learn. It well it depends actually. It's hardest. I think it's the hardest to spell because we spell things so crazy. But also, it's one of the easiest in terms of the conjugation. Chinese the... is really hard. From yeah, what that's I understand. Be pretty pretty damn hard yeah. But yeah you take on different personalities like in german i'm like a hard and angry in french i'm sort of philosophical. i learned a bit of german yeah a bit of german ah. a bit of french so but yeah no. absolutely yeah <laughs> so, but yeah sorry are we digressing go on to no no, no we're not actually i mean what you've described is literally one of the core things of magic the idea of 
Um, so people who get real far into magical training, one of the things you're recommended to do is, you know, most people are stuck in one belief system their whole life. It's usually the religion or worldview that they're raised in. And the, a very, very chaos magical idea, one that I've ascribed to my entire life is to become like a consumer of religions and to, or not just religions, but belief structures take on new belief structures and personalities lots. So you know, like I've been a Sufi, I've been a Buddhist, I've been, I went to India and studied in the mountains. I went and worked on Madison Avenue and became like a very cynical, jaded advertising, you know, copywriter. Uh, and I've taken on all of these, you know, what are often called magical systems, but I go full into it. I try to live that way. And what you get from that is exactly what you were describing. Learning the language would be an even deeper level because then you're changing the way your brain is functioning. <clears throat> But by doing that, like, yes, A, you're getting kind of the wisdom and techniques from those cultures, but you're also demonstrating to yourself that reality is thermoplastic, meaning it does conform to belief. If you believe new things about reality, reality tends to match it. And my theory on that is not that there's something necessarily, quote unquote, supernatural going on. My theory on that is just that our little views of the world are so tiny and the universe is so giant that... All of that is there. And, we, and all we need to do is shift our, our angle of perception and the whole thing changes. So what, that, that's a uh, phenomenal what you've, been, what you've described and it, 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 it gels perfectly with magical philosophy. Ah, well, I'm pleased you think so. And I think the point I was going to make originally was it, it's so hard. We've got these brains and we know we can do it. And with languages, I learned them in my 20s because you know I was rubbish at school. I was really bad at school at languages. Um, and it was just a case of doing it every single day and trying to get better every single day and not giving up and most people give up and that's why they can't do it uh, i guess you could equate making a podcast and making that successful most people give up in the first few weeks uh piano keyboards guitar you know people most people give up and some people for some reason with certain things just keep going and i wonder if like meditation just some people keep going but they're just able to and i i just i can't i can't do it because i'm bored and my head is just bored is it, and i'm wondering if people listening might be thinking the same thing they've tried meditation a few times and it's just ah, it's just not me or do you think like is it maybe everyone can can do it yes everyone can do it it's 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 i mean i'll just be honest it is a question of discipline you've got to you've got to discipline it's the same as saying you know i went to the gym and it's not for me well that may be true but no one can deny that going to you're going to be healthier going to the gym you <laughs> yeah. know like this is something i struggle with at times so so but it, it's it's basically that 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 straightforward i think it's it's just it a high particularly a lot of cultures in asia by the way are not necessarily full of serious meditators a lot of these traditions like buddhism uh Taoism, hinduism in 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 Eastern countries are much more practices like folk magic or kind of mythology rather than the actual meditation techniques. So even within these cultures, meditation is not necessarily as prevalent as you might think. Um, yeah. But I, I think that meditation is the core technique of spirituality, period. And that's if I was to get in everyone to get on board with one thing, it would be that. But I think that people, I think we would really true, we truly would live in a much better world if people just treated meditation like taking a shower and it, brushing your teeth. It's a daily hygienic thing, you know, or, yeah. you know, going for a walk, that type of thing. And it just needs to be persisted in. And I don't think that there's anything spooky or spiritual or supernatural about it other than when you're able to 
harness 100% of your of your focus. Uh, we know now scientifically that the idea that you're not using 100% of your brain is not true, but we are definitely not using 100% of our focus. We're not leveraging correctly leveraging what we what we are. And when people can do that, they can do things that to all intents and purposes look like magic to the people around them. You know, in the same way that you look at, like kind of like you were talking about, you look at somebody who's at the top of their field, anyone who's at the top of their field, whether it's Michael Jordan or Arnold Schwarzenegger, or, you know, if you look, read any of these people's biographies, they're all using these techniques, meditation, visualization, and there's nothing Alistair Crowley about that. It's just, it just demonstrates the nature of the human mind, I think, um, that learning to focus and, and I, I touched upon earlier, the true will you talk about, like some people get into guitar and drop it. I, I've done a billion things like that. It's not like you suddenly become great at everything because time is limited no matter what you do. And you kind of have to like plant your flag in the ground at a certain point and say, this is the thing that I'm doing and sticking with. And, and that's what I think distinguishes people who can from those who can't in whatever field it is but that's not necessarily bad because you don't want to plant your flag where you're not in resonant with your true self so the first the first order in in order of operations the first thing to do is find out who you are and the techniques of magic are tried and true they've worked for ten thousand years or more for doing that for discovering who you truly are and the next is building the discipline to to manifest that because just knowing what your true calling is that's just the first step the next is actually carrying pulling it off i've got a comment uh, again from paulie i watched a video of a woman who said she meditated to such a state that she left her body and traveled to her mother's house across the country and went into the room where her mother was sewing a dress that she had no idea about she then called her mother and sure enough the mother was making a dress now that's not possible is it it's 100 percent possible this is um, absolutely. And it tends to be actually a fairly common side effect of meditation. It's, you know, it's in our culture, we call it astral projection or astral travel. Uh, and uh, it is absolutely possible. And it's absolutely one of the steps along the path. However, um, people get a little too hung up on it. All the Eastern meditation man manuals say that these are cities uh, or magical powers that are meant to be uh, not also, they're meant to also, you're not supposed to attach, attach to them. So the ultimate goal is simply to have a, a silent mind. That's the goal. And these things come and go like what you were describing. I've experienced many things like that. Uh, yeah. anyone who has done this for long enough, most likely has, but it's kind of a sideshow. It's, it's cool when it happens, but you don't want to get distracted by it. You want to just keep going with the meditation practice itself rather than fixating on the side effect. But yeah, the, it's, it's absolutely real. It's cultivated within some traditions, particularly Western magic. Uh, mm. You can guide it. And we teach those techniques at magic.me. But what is the... What's the science behind being able to travel as a sort of ghost into someone else's? <laughs> I don't house? think there is any. <laughs> isn't it? I mean, isn't it just guess that you maybe subliminally that person imagined their mother was sewing a dress and it felt very real to them? Maybe, but in my in my way of thinking, I would much rather have the experience and then try to rationalize why it happened later than rationalize my way out of having the experience first, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the magical way of thinking. It's like, why did it happen? I have no idea. I'm not a scientist. I don't pretend to be a scientist. I don't put magic in contravention to science. I think that would be foolish, particularly the state of the world that we're in. Magic is a subjective art. It is about what human consciousness can do, not 
something like it's going to like you know be some type of medical thing or, or pharmacy you know it's not it's not in contravention to magic or excuse me not in contravention to science so yeah. um my view on it is simply that what we think of as consciousness is extremely limited uh in the way that we think of it we tend to ascribe the voice we think that the voice in our head is us when really that's just such a tiny inconsequential thing consciousness is a vast vast field that we're all in and i, I like to uh, and that we can move in. And, and I like to think of it as kind of like our brains are terminals and consciousness is the internet that we all seem to be sharing. Mm. And and as you become better and better at meditation, that, that kind of opens up and becomes much more real. So sort of a telepathic network to some extent. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that, that you know, it, I'm often shocked that the people who relate the most magical experiences to me or tend to be the most like quote unquote normal people everyone's had the experience of they're thinking of someone and then they call i think everyone's probably had that experience why i don't know um precognitive dreams you know and and it's not just people's experiences it's the story of history you know if you look at any major disaster everyone had you know sudden intuitions or dreams not to get on that plane or that boat so I think that what we refer to as we have all these words in, again, in English, right? It's like part of this is the language. In English, we have all these words and concepts that we've inherited from um, the Enlightenment and, and uh, you know, Victorian era, Victorian era, British, you know, rational, hyper-rationalism, this type of thing. And it's very political, uh, you know, like the the... the the explaining away of the subtle supernatural or more feminine aspects of life is within English is absolutely political. If you think of it was the language used to create the British empire and dominate all of these cultures that very much were like India, for instance, uh, that were very much engaged in these things, but the, the ability of, of kind of Western people to just shut that stuff off completely. Because the thing is when you shut off, because look at it this way, we have things like Buddhism where, I think it's probably well understood that if you really, really engage in uh, spiritual techniques, you really develop a lot of empathy. Well, um, during the imperial age, people did not have a lot of empathy. So part of shutting off empathy, I think, uh, has, uh, which is really just the sense of connection between people, allowed a certain imperial ability to, hmm. you know, dominate, conquer, and, and destroy and so it's but it is a function of the language and and language is political and that's a probably a much bigger topic but um yeah yeah i think i, yeah. I lost the thread of the original no, question. No, my I apologies I think I, I get what you're saying and uh, sort of the empire spread with this sort of ration, ultra-rational language and ultra-rational techniques and things. I suppose you could say, on the other hand, there have been plenty of uh, countries and tribes and empires founded upon spirituality sure. as well. And spirituality sure. can be used. Humans use anything, don't they, you know, to dominate yeah. others, whether it be spirituality or ultra oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, the English were quite successful at it, as have the Americans yeah. been. Um, oh, we're good at stuff. We're good at stuff. <laughs> there <laughs> there you go. Bad thing. Bad empire. Bad. No, I actually bad. wrote the last book I wrote was called John D and the Empire of Angels. And it was about the occult. In the reason I'm talking about the British Empire, it's about all this, the magic that went into the creation of the British Empire. Even the phrase British Empire was created by Dr. John D, who was Elizabeth I's 
uh, court astrologer who spent 10 years talking to angels and they, he said the angels gave him the idea that there should be a British empire oh. and as well as all the whole plan that England should be a sea power, as well as all the mathematics required to do it all came from a guy who claimed to be talking to angels. who was also one of the smartest people in England at the time. So this, mm. this idea that there's any, I, as I, after 25 years of this, I, I, this, I, I can really say that this idea that magic is something separate from our experience or that it is a historical anomaly or is a superstition is simply just not true because a the entire history of the world is immersed in it and you, you just you just can't you can't argue with that you can say everyone throughout history has been diluted okay maybe but you can't argue the fact that this has been you know this is simply part of this, this is part of the mortar brick and mortar construction of history and also i've simply learned as a teacher that the interest in this topic really does span all nationalities classes backgrounds professions gender you know everything so it's just i i think that magic is is as innate to human beings as the religious impulse and probably more innate quite frankly Hmm. Ray, Ray J asks, is magic not just uh, an, a misunderstood or not understood science? Well, magic actually was the parent tradition of science. This is the other interesting thing. Science was created by alchemists, including John Dee, but also Isaac Newton, uh, even Descartes. You know, they were all like um, deeply immersed in in Rosicrucian and, and Western esoteric thinking. So I think that Western esotericism really is the core tradition of of western culture and science is the is the child and a, and a quite good one at that as long as it's not funded by defense companies and pharmaceutical companies you know i think science is probably the greatest thing humanity ever came up with the problem is it just the people funding it aren't often having the best intentions um so in, in a sense you could say that but i think that you know magic is magic is the western magic proper is the the main river from which the stream of science flows but they are very separate. They are separate things. And I, I don't, you know, I, I like to, and I like to get Christopher Hitchens about things. I like to get super rational about things. It really is a real antidote to when I get too fuzzy thinking. And I would never dare to say that magic is um, in conflict with science. I, I try to look at it more as, you know, a subjective art of exploring your own mind. Hmm. And, and I mean, it's the most fascinating thing but and probably the most complex thing we know of in in the universe the human brain so it's we barely know anything i i recently um uh, consulted with google on their artificial intelligence program and i was reading so much about ai and one of the things that i discovered really quickly is we have no idea what consciousness is because this is a this is a real hard hard math problem right now they're trying to come up with some type of equation that can explain human consciousness and they good luck with that you know it's like we we know next to nothing about what consciousness is in real terms we have a lot of of course we have the whole of human history artwork and communication to understand what it is in subjective terms in a way everything we do is to attempt to explain human consciousness consciousness to each other even down to relationships and things like this or parenting these are all attempts to understand what human consciousness is but if you want to put it into math good luck Right. But magic is a magic is a method of exploring it that works and is empirical in the sense that you can repeat things that other people have done. And you pretty much get the same 
uh, mm. results. And it's extremely great, extremely good as a framework for understanding the human consciousness and soul and all of the meaning of life and all of this stuff. It's just, it's just a, it's a practical method, I would say, not necessarily a science. It's not a hard science, but it is an empirical and practical method. I only realized recently that science doesn't have a consensus on, on what life is. Um, and I, I was interviewing a guy called Professor Carl Zimmer, and he wrote a book, I think it was called On the Edge of Life or something like that. Uh, and it's like you could argue that a cell is alive or that a brain is alive that a fetus is alive that's that's obviously a very you know the contentious one so is a human alive is a human made up of like millions of alive things uh we scientists can't say where life begins and ends it's, it's fascinating it is fascinating yeah I, I wasn't really aware of that before mm, and it seems like, like a keep... brain is alive right so I, I think so. A, a kidney <laughs> is so. alive, but the cells. I, I sometimes it, people I sometimes accuse me of being brain dead. You know, it's like if I if I misplace something around the house or something like that. But hopefully, that's, it's alive. But, that's really interesting. You say that because there was this story in his book about somebody, and I, I'm going to get the states wrong, but I think it was somebody in California who was declared brain dead because uh, their their brain was pretty much no longer functioning, and were about to be, you know buried or whatever and then they were the parents wouldn't it was like it was a kid who had, it was a routine operation that they died from unfortunately and they moved that kid to the other side of the country so i'm going to say new york where the law is different and the law there wasn't that if you're brain dead you're dead it was like your heart has to be dead or something like that i'm probably i'm butchering this story but it's the the the, the essence of it is there um and that child stayed in a coma for like 10 years and even went through puberty which implies parts of the brain were, was were still alive and it was just the difference between these two different states and how they treated what alive is oh hang on i've just cut off haven't i can you hear me still yep okay as long as you can hear me hang on i'll just get the camera going again that happens sometimes da, da, da. i can hear you too sexy oh for god's sake sean just watching in Bar, well, that bar stood. Right, I'm back on. I'm back on. Yeah, so, so you know, even the, the laws that we have can't decide who's alive and who isn't and what constitutes being alive. Right, and, and law is simply just a social agreement between people. It really has nothing to do with objective truth. I, I, one thing as you, I was thinking of as you were mentioning that is I believe the Romans thought that the seat of consciousness was the liver. <laughs> that seems so, mad to us now, doesn't it? Right. You know, well, that's why it hits, you know, beer hits you so, so, so fast. But uh, yeah, uh, I, the, there's also been recent cases where um, people have lost parts of their brain or parts of their brain have been traumatized and no longer function. And the rest of the brain picks up the slack from those functions. So we're learning yeah. that even the idea that, that, yes, there are certain parts of the brain do certain things for sure. But we're, we're seeing that it's not quite that cut and dry. Those functions can be shuffled around. And, um, so I, I think that I, well, I just think that it's a very, very healthy attitude to understand that we really don't know anything, uh, or we know very little. I think we've learned, we know a lot more than we used to, but when I think that the amount that humanity understands about the universe is, is inconsequential. And so there's, you know, the idea that consciousness can be explained away and put in a jar is is i i think that will be seen as a a, a gross superstition by people in the future well i well i've definitely learned a lot more than i knew 
half an hour ago. Uh, so thank you so much for You're telling welcome. me all about that. Tell me where, where, you know, obviously we've already, we've already said, but tell us where people can find you, at, you know, Twitter and podcasts and stuff. Yeah, so everything's at my website, jasonlouv.com, but I recommend that if I was to give you one thing to do, it would be to subscribe to my podcast. It's Ultra Culture with Jason Louv. You can just search my name on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to that. We're doing it weekly. It's really, really good. We interview some of the best thinkers in this field and as well as people in working in pop culture and, and um, neuro, neuro people, neuropsychologist neuro we interviewed recently. Mm. Um, so I highly recommend subscribing to that. And yes. uh, it, it's going very well. And I think that we're, we're, we've been doing it for a long time. We're into the hundreds of episodes now. So there's a huge back catalog to get into if, if this subject interests you. And if you really want to dig in, my, my school for magic is magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. If you just want to go straight in and learn how to do this, that's the place to do it. Podcast looks really cool. People do support Jason. Get looking at his podcast. Subscribe to it. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Um, let me know if you ever want me to come on and talk about languages and exorcism and stuff on your podcast. Are you free this week? We have an open we have an open slot. <laughs> We're trying to get someone right now. <laughs> depends when. Depends when. Sean's listening in. We're organizing stuff for another podcast, Sean. Um, 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 Maybe we can well, talk offline. Listen. Yeah, let's do that. I, I'll find you on Twitter and uh, yeah. And do that. All right. Well, the pleasure has uh, been all mine, and thank and you mine for this as well. Talk. Thanks, Jason and uh, Sean. Sean, you're going to have to boot him off because I don't. Oh, he's just done it. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> Brilliant interview. Fascinating again. Uh, great, great way to end the night. I'm just going to stay in the audio field as I'm in my PJs eating my yeah. Indian food after yeah. the slog of today. But uh, but well done, man. This was some of your best work today when you were doing those royal rants. Oh, you like you like the, me getting the, a bit angry. They, they, the chat went nuts. They were like, they've never seen you like that before. Oh, that's funny you say that because I, I only picked up on two people who had a go at me, and that's typical. That's psychology, isn't it? No, they were behind you. That the chat was like, yeah, and the, you know, I, I think it just tonight. It just the show just built and built and built. The first hour was phenomenal just you know mars versus atlantis interplanetary wars ancient civilizations prior to the uh world world setting due to infinite time cataclysmic yeah. events then we went over to steeples on savile max clifford etc <laughs> it was a good mate we've got people we've got people in the comments asking us to get ben shapiro on the show do you know much about him I've watched some of his stuff, especially with Joe Rogan. Maybe it might be time to get the fella on. Him and Jordan Peterson, big Ooh. hitters, aren't they? Oh, if you get Jordan Peterson on, he just he blows up. You know, wherever he just gets hundreds of thousands of views. Yeah, so we will we will reach out. Um, huge thank you to everyone in the chat, especially on Patreon. Thank you for supporting us. Happy birthday, Amy! You just. Well, in the UK, you're just one hour, 45 minutes away from your birthday in Alabama. Oh, happy, happy birthday, Amy. Really nice to, to wish you a pleasant birthday. Is that a New York accent or Alabama? <laughs> hey, I'm walking here. That's my New York. New York. <laughs> hey, superb. That's superb. A bit of... Uh, it's, gone a bit, it's gone a bit Jewish New York or gangster New York now. But I'm can, a, you do I, a, can you do the South? Um, I do declare that uh, I did not have relations. Is that is where's Clinton from? Arkansas. Is that the South? 
I don't, I'm not exactly sure. I'm going to pull up a map now. Let's have a look. Arkansas. Arkansas. Maps. It's next, it to Missis- a... next to Mississippi. Yeah, it's one of those. It's got a flag. Yeah, it's above, it's above, it's above Louisiana next to Texas. Yeah. I did not have relations with that woman. Very south, Cat Sand says. <laughs> I can't do yours. I want to be able to do... I'm going to go back over there. Gonna turn me music on. Gonna turn me music on. Up for Liverpool. <laughs> Near Liverpool. It's going all right now. Oh, Bach. I can just do Bach. What else do they say? Chechen. Yeah, lag is a ciggy. <laughs> do you go extra scouts when you're with like people Chips. from around there? Well, I'm with I'm with Nissan, but when I do go into Liverpool, I go more scouts because I went to yeah. University of Liverpool, so it comes right back. You should but then when I get into witness, I'm like chip, fish, chips, and peas. Love with salt and vinegar. <laughs> you should see me when I go to football matches in like Tottenham, like London. I go proper like Hooli. fucking yeah, fucking London, mate. Yeah, it's proper big game this is, isn't it, mate? There's, there's some. There's a new thing on Netflix about football hooligans. It's, it's trending right now. But I yeah. did finish Ozark last night. Have you finished Ozark? No, because I, I didn't watch the latest season because I just I got tired of it. And the, the part of the reason was I know you love it. But I can I can even imagine your face right now. But I watched <laughs> I rewatched I rewatched Breaking Bad just yeah. before, and it's just a different level. You can't even compare. Them. Can't beat Breaking Bad. Definitely. It's different level, love so. love a bit of Jesse. Yeah, so Ozark just felt a bit like, come on, what are you even trying to do? Whereas if I had left it a few years and then watched <laughs> Ozark, you know, God, you're a Breaking Bad purist, aren't you? I love Breaking Bad to the point actually that I recently watched all of the Sopranos and everybody says the Sopranos is the best thing of all time and it's like it's like it's got this godlike image. It's you can't you know beyond anything the Sopranos and it is fantastic, but I still say that Breaking Bad is better. And people go mad at me. They say I'm a, a you know, an idiot for saying that. Paulie's Paul, off. In, yeah, better this, call this Saul. Is, this is the thing. We had such high expectations for Better Call Saul when Breaking Bad finished. <sighs> yeah. And there was no action. Nothing I was happened. falling asleep. It was just this boring, slow plot. His brother was ill. Fortunately, they put out that Breaking Bad movie, which satisfied me for a little bit. <laughs> but Saul, like, I can, Netflix is still trying to push Saul on me now. And they got they got some of the old Breaking Bad characters, and I'm like, oh my god, if I could just if they could just put it all together right, they got the ingredient, they they got the ingredients, but they're not putting the right measures of them. Yeah, because imagine imagine Breaking Bad, right, the best show ever, but every episode was exactly the same, but it didn't have Heisenberg and it didn't have Jesse. You'd just be like, okay, and that's what but that's what Better Call Saul is. Yeah, but it's worse than that. Well, they give you they yeah. they've, they've give you little teases of the old characters as if the plots and the storylines are gonna like blow up and go mental, and then it just you get excited and then that character just goes and nothing happens. Nothing what happens. What you're basically describing to me now is The Simpsons, but there's no Homer or Bart, and it's just every episode is Lisa and Marge, but every now and then you see like Mo pops in. Well, it's not enough. Where's where's uh, Bart and Homer? It's just all about the money, isn't it? They should have had the production team that did Breaking Bad, the story arc. They should have kept the same story arcs, but instead, new production team, same cast of characters, story yeah. arcs are crap. These guys can't can't put, make a story arc to save their lives. A lot of people love Better Call Saul, though, don't they? I know, and I'm probably ostracised myself from the Saulians. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm, yeah, I, we tried it, my girlfriend and I, and we both got... We, yeah, you, it was just a bloke being a bit weird in a house for a while with a tinfoil hat. I know, please forgive me. I am a puritanical Walter Whiteian, though. Oh, it's just it's just the best show of all time. I watched Malcolm in the Middle the other day, and um, you, you know he's he's uh, he's the dad. Do you, do you remember when Walter White went and like I think he was meeting like bikers in a building and he took some chemicals with him that that he knew would explode. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's your dream. You see yourself as him. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? We all like have fantasies about things, but these characters actually do them. Yeah, yeah, but they're not real. But they're not real. Yeah, although you've had a pretty mad life, to be fair. One day someone will play you in a film. Yeah, maybe you. With a bald I was, was going to say, I could do it. I could do it. <laughs> Shave your head. I'm not, I'm not a good enough actor. Until I get that accent down, they're not going to hire me. Well, if they want to, you know, like they have those body doubles and not, you only just see the hurry back. <laughs> That's what we need. <laughs> right, you got. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to do, be, see what I look like bald. <laughs> Right. You got way too much energy, Andrew. You need to go to bed. I've got to do audio editing now. Do some fucking. I'm oh, oh, swearing everywhere. Do some audio editing. <laughs> what, are you, what, what are you editing? So, what we do is um, I've got to just get all the clips and all the audio and all the bits that didn't work tonight. I've got to get the timestamps and get those removed. And la 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 la. Well, you do that. I thought you had a whole operation, mate. Let's not pretend you do that, Sean. You've got I've got it all memorized right now. I've got everything memorized from the whole four hours of the parts that worked, the parts that we can't republish. So I can go straight to them, get the timestamps instead of someone sitting there for four hours and doing the whole thing. I can do it in 30 minutes. Mate, my mind's blown. <laughs> the stuff you do, ladies and gentlemen, because Sean is he's the king of this. So it's for him to be up at this time doing it. He, he I am the king of being a robot. Exterminate! Exterminate! <sighs> Go a bit of da- work, mate. Is Davros... Do you relate to Davros or is that before your time? I don't know what it is. I've heard it. It's oh, my God. Go, on, you, go oh. on YouTube and look up Davros. Doc- Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Right, the Daleks and all that. Okay, I know yeah, that. but Davros was the boss. He looks horrible. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> right go to sleep mate and all of you as well watching what are you doing don't you know any better go to sleep all it's of early in america in alabama yeah not where ray j is not where <laughs> well, i don't know where paulie is they're all in the projects in yeah. glasgow <laughs> get a without offending you ray j get a fried mars bar i had that in edinburgh and everyone was like really offended because i went whenever i go anywhere i like to get the dessert from the place. I'm not interested in seeing an Eiffel Tower, for example. I want to get a macaroon. That's what I want to eat. Uh, in Portugal, I'll have a pastel de nata. In Scotland, I went around looking for a fried Mars bar, and everyone was so offended in Edinburgh. They're going, oh, that's more of a Glasgow thing. And I was like, didn't come you on. Get, didn't you go in for the haggis? No, because I don't, I don't eat meat. Oh, that's true, yeah. Particularly not intestine. But I went, I did find a pub eventually somewhere in central Edinburgh that after pretending to be offended gave me a fried Mars bar and it was the best thing I've ever had in my life. Did it come out your in and out your body fast? I think I was very ill for a long time, yeah. But it was <laughs> it was quite it took about four years off my life. Um but it was <laughs> it was good. So book book fast is absolutely disgusting according to Polly Walnuts. What's book fast? 
And Rita is about to have dinner in uh, lunch in uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. It makes you think yeah. of um, Dracula, doesn't it? So next week, because uh, it's the Patreons, we can tell you this. Hmm? We're hoping to have Maria Farmer and the Behaviour Panel. Ooh. Massive. It's going to be massive if we do. Yeah. That's going to be big. God, why is yeah. it whenever it's it's big the big people you never quite know never quite know if they'll turn up and stuff. That's just how life is, I guess. Oh, we're tight with those crews. Believe yeah. me, they'll they'll show up. Sean's got some links to some big <laughs> big. Yeah. Every now and then, off off screen, I say to Sean like, "What about this person?" And there's a few I'm thinking of. I won't say in case we don't get them in the end or whatever. But there's one or two. There's one hero of mine, and Sean was like, "Yeah, here's his email address. Here you go, just have it." I was like, what? You know that person? I can't believe we're having David Beckham on. Oh! <laughs> David Beckham. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, right. my God. All right. Yeah. I'm off. Muy buenas noches, mi amigo hermoso. Oh, that's really nice, mate. Buenas noches a usted también. Gracias. <laughs> good night good night everyone thanks for joining good night us. everyone much love and respect thank you so much for being with us see you next week and don't forget Jehovah's Witness podcast on Sunday 6pm UK and female in prison in the UK Tawana for holding guns for London gangsters on Monday 6pm UK um, Atwood Unleashed is back on Wednesday then I'm going on the road a little bit, but we're going to keep the show going. All right. Thank you for all of your support. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world. Cheers. Bye.